It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hey everybody, Patrick Connor here, and welcome to the Knuckles and Gloves podcast. More boxing history. We're closing out the greatest punchers series, which means I'm here with my guy, Eris Pina, CompuBox operator, knows a little something about punching. Also, fight history guy. What's up, man? How are you, How are you doing, man? Not too bad, my friend. Not too bad. Um, yeah, we're closing out our heavyweight punchers series today. Uh, it's been a lot of fun. We've been going back and forth, talking, reminiscing about some of our favorite fighters. And um, would it be right if we didn't mention the passing of one of the greatest punches of all time? We discussed him on a past show, but just, you know, and mention at least, you know, R.I.P. Ernie Shavers, who um, passed away, what was that, <clears throat> last week or so, at the um, age of 78. And, yeah, man, you know, Shavers, we've discussed his whole career, so we're not going to get into it, but it, it's sad. Because not only was he, you know, a very, very exciting fighter, one of the greatest punches of all times, who um who had lasting memories for a lot of fans, but if you had the chance to meet him, you know, and I absolutely, and I was uh, blessed to for a number of times at the hall of fame over the years, then you realize how much of a nice guy he was too. And he was just a really, really humble, quiet, kind hearted individual with the most massive hands you would ever see. So you understand why, you know, he was just cold cock and juice. <laughs> right. That was literally carrying bricks for fists. So rest in peace, sir. He's, he was a good sized guy too. Like he wasn't the, yeah, he wasn't like the, like the height of like a, you know, George Foreman's pretty tall. You know, there are a number of like Lennox Lewis, like six, five, six, six. There are a number of fighters are like really tall. He wasn't that tall, but he was just a big, broad guy. Mean, scary looking individual. Yeah. And yeah, but surprisingly soft spoken, it sounded like. Totally. And- no, he was just really humble. He did like he kind of spoke like in a quiet whisper that like you had to lean in a little bit to really hear him. And yeah, just complimentary of everybody, had time for everybody. And he was proud of his accomplishments. I mean, he didn't become heavyweight champion, but look, he's talked about more than nine and a good percentage of former champions out there. So yep. definitely left his impact. No question. He's without a question. Even people who don't know a whole lot about boxing history name him as one of the hardest punchers of all time, you know, so he left his mark without question. Um, It's unfortunate that he passed away, but he definitely lived. It sounds like a long, you know, fruitful, pretty happy life. Um, But I'm happy. Listen to to this story, though, really quick. So that's quickest thing I read on the old boxing.com website. There was a thing where I think it was Tex Cobb's wife said that they had some kind of function, whether it was an autograph function or some kind of thing that they had to go to. And it was Tex Cobb, and they all, and think of this crew that stood in the same room together. Tex Cobb, Ernie Shavers, and Michael Dokes. And they're all kind of staying. And <laughs> Cobb's wife said she woke up to the visual of Dokes was naked or semi-naked and watching a porno. <clears throat> watching a porno. <laughs> Cobb was in the corner smoking a joint. And Shavers was in the other corner reading the Bible. 
<laughs> Jesus. All right, then. That's the three. That's the three genders. The three yeah. extremes. <laughs> Jesus Christ. That's hilarious, dude. That well, I mean, it's somewhat frightening, somewhat hilarious, mm-hmm. but that's pretty good, dude. Well, I'm I'm happy that we got to talk about Ernie uh, as one of the greatest punchers and kind of discuss his career a bit before he passed away. I mean, not that that's necessarily, I guess, any consolation, but I'm happy that we got to do that because, um, sure. without question, one of the greatest punchers of all time. And as I said, kind of on the first episode where we started doing this. Nobody's really get mad that we're talking about great punchers or fun knockouts or anything like that, because that's always a fun thing to talk about and a fun thing to like, we've encouraged people while, as we've been doing this to when there is footage, you know, go back and watch, go back and see for yourself. Like that's the best way to do this. You know, we have fun talking about it, but go back and look for yourself for sure. But there's no question. The sport of boxing has been absolutely chock full of really, really great punchers. So to close out this third episode, who's a great puncher that we didn't bring up before and we got to talk about now? Uh, one of my all-time favorite fighters, in fact. Um, probably yours, too. I mean, probably everybody's, man. You know what I mean? Uh, Miracle Matthew, Matthew Saad Muhammad, who I consider probably the greatest action fighter ever. And you have to put him as one of the, you know, premier punchers of not only uh, of his time, but of all time. Absolute, just absolute scary puncher. But then he has like several fights that were all like fight of the year contender worthy. I mean, there's like several fights on his, like, just go on to box, right? Go down his, you know, and there's like several fights on there that you could watch that are just like back and forth slugfests, or if not necessarily slugfests, just instances where he got the shit kicked out of him or got cut real bad, or he got knocked down or wobbled like several times and then came back to just blast the shit out of the guy. You know, he was, he was unpredictable and wild and, uh, his entire backstory and everything that makes oh, for incredible backstory. You yeah. can you make a movie about it. Luckily, we're getting a couple of books and um, pretty soon, in fact, on his life. So that's something to look forward to. But the gist of it, and um, I'm sure you can add to this path, but like he was born Maxwell Antonio Loach, correct? Yep. And he was abandoned very young. Um, I think it was that his his mother instructed his older brother or something like that to take him and bring him to. Uh, I want to say it was it was actually, if I'm not mistaken, and this will be confirmed in the books, I'm sure, but um, I I believe it was his mom had died young, and so he was in the care of an aunt. Okay. And then the aunt instructed her kids, who were his cousins, to That's go. True. Okay. Okay. To go take him out onto the street and leave him. And that's what they, yeah, and that's where he was left, and um, nuns found him, and that's when he was deemed, um, he was renamed Matthew Franklin, because he was found on what, uh, the Franklin Park, like around. Yeah, it was Benjamin Franklin Parkway in Philly, and I've heard two stories. Uh, The first story was that they had asked him what his name was, and that he did not speak well, or that he was really young. And that they misunderstood him when he said Maxwell and they thought he said Matthew. So they named him Matthew, but they didn't, that he didn't know his last name. And then the other story that I heard was that they were nuns and they were Catholic. So they named him after St. Matthew. I don't know. Um, I I don't know how you could really confirm that, I guess, unless it was from him, you know, directly. 
But in any case, uh, that's kind of burying the lead here. The actual meat of the story is the tragedy in that and how as a young child, you know, that framing your worldview is going to be tough. And so he was obviously from the very start, uh, he had a tough life. You know, he uh, even had a difficult life after being brought in uh, by the nuns and got into trouble fairly frequently, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it, it turned into a very typical story, the kind of story that we <clears throat> almost would have been talking about on one of our true crime episodes or something like that. But luckily, he found boxing. And so that's another stereotypical story we've we've told where somebody finds boxing and uh, it didn't end nearly as tragically, thank goodness. But he gave us so, so much action. Like, it's unreal. Absolutely. And thankfully, a lot of it's on TV. Totally. And, and you know what's interesting is that, uh, like, there's not a lot of footage of his earlier career, like I'm going to talk about, like, in the early to mid-70s. I mean, mid-70s. And he came up tough in the Philadelphia circuit. I mean, as they all did. But he fought a who's who back then. And he wasn't known as the slugger we, like, watched with, uh, you know, we all, all of us being in awe and adoration. He was more of a boxer back then, yep. all accounts, you know, and it was the fights. He was having really close decisions, whether he was losing them, winning them by split decision or they were, they were, they were a draw. And he was fighting guys like Marvin Campbell, who um, <clears throat> one never became a premier light heavyweight, but went on to become the first cruiserweight champion, a very tough all around guy split a pair of fights with him, had to go to, had to go to Campbell's hometown for one of the fights. And another one, I think was in Cali went to uh, Mate Palov who, um, an Olympian, and then another guy from the mid seventies, mid to late seventies, who was awkward, tough. Um, where was he from? Yugoslavia, and, yeah, and he's like a Yugoslavian hero. Like yes. they fucking Holy, loved. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Became WBC light heavyweight champion. Then eventually he uh, he fought Camel for the um, for the vacant cruiserweight title. So another guy. He had to go to his background. He had to go to his own. You know, um, definitely wasn't in America to fight him. <laughs> And he was barely able to escape by with a draw. Soon after that, he fights um, Eddie Mustafa Muhammad in a battle of future champions, loses a close decision to him. So it was after the um, Eddie Mustafa Muhammad fight where Saad Muhammad decided, still Matthew Franklin at this point, by the way, but that's when he decided at this point where he was like, you know what, he had to change things around because him trying to be a boxer and still going to decisions, it just wasn't working because the fights that were he felt he was going to win Sometimes he wasn't getting a decision and his career was kind of getting stagnated a little bit. <laughs> Once he turned that curve afterwards and by 1977, things started really changing for him. You know what I mean? Um, soon after he had his first fight with um, his nemesis, Marvin Johnson. And my God, man, both of those fights were incredibly brutal. The first fight wasn't for the championship. It was for the NABF title, which still back then we've discussed. That was a very prominent belt. If you weren't going to be a champ, if you weren't a world champion, and Johnson, former Olympian himself, he's undefeated at this point, probably the guy that was favored because Sam Muhammad had had a few losses at this. And they went to war. This is a fight that was definitely shown on um, the old ESPN Classic Channel. I remember watching it back in the day. I'm sure you do too. And um, that was one of the fights that, like, the early fights of Saad, that you were like, holy shit, man, look at this warrior in the ring because he got his ass kicked early on in it. You know, Marvin Johnson was one of those guys. He was a machine. He could punch hard. He was a southpaw, really good skills, all-around talent. And if you wanted to throw it out with him, he'd throw it out. And so those guys' styles just... Good well. fighter, but he always looked like he was like 52. 
that yo that that whole like you know George Jefferson um Sherman Hemsley like you know the yeah, yeah. and back yeah, then he still had moving on up for sure hair. yeah he still had the hair back then a little bit but you could see the receding hairline and then <laughs> by the time they have the rematch for the championship yeah you went full on halo but, yeah, it was like it was like Bobo Olsen, dude. Like that yeah, fool just started going bald real young and just looked. So that's old. I mean, I think more so that was why his nickname became Pops or Great Pops or whatever <laughs> in in the early to mid eighties when he became on that comeback. Instead of him instead of it being because he was only like thirty three or thirty four. But anyways, by the late seventies now, that's when Saad started really hitting his stride in terms of having absolute wars with guys early on. This was before he became champion. The Marvin Johnson fight. You've never seen it. Go back and watch. That fight is absolutely incredible. Um, the fight with Billy Douglas. I'm not sure. I've never seen it. I'm not sure if you have. But by all accounts, that, that fight was definitely brutal as hell. Billy Douglas was, um, I'm sure most people who listen to the show know that, but Billy Douglas was Buster Douglas's um, dad. Dad and my Billy Douglas. And a badass fighter in his own right, who fought frequently in the, in the spectrum in Philadelphia, even though he wasn't from there. And just all around really, really tough contender from the era. Never became champion, but just fought a who's who of guys and won some, lost some, but gave everybody hell. So soon after that, you'll get Richie Cates, and then he has his first fight with Yaki Lopez, which, again, the styles just mesh perfectly together. And <clears throat> other absolute war that Saad has. And this, again, this is all before pre-championship. We know him for his fights, you know, being televised all the time for his championship fights. This is all pre-title, and he's already going through the ringer already. So, I mean, the odometer's already ticking on his career at this point. But there was still, after the Lopez fight, now it was time, it's 1979, he's going to fight Marvin Johnson in a rematch, this time for the World Championship. And that's when the real fun begins. Yeah, dude. I, well, I mean, and uh, he, <clears throat> right around this time, too, not that we just didn't bring it up when we were talking about the first Marvin Johnson fight, but Marvin Johnson was like a golden gloves champion. He was like a really, oh, really good amateur. Yeah. He wasn't just some chump. He gets kind of pushed on. He gets like swept under the rug a little bit, unfortunately, when it, when it uh, comes to talking to some uh, records and stuff like that, partially because he lost uh, Matthew saw Muhammad twice, I think. And that wound up being a, just a bit of a knock on his career as far as not really being able to oh. get it get over you know get through matthew saad muhammad i mean and, that's and Eddie mustafa muhammad and um like the sphinx too so that kind of like put him at a right at a he just he could never quite get past that he won a world title but he could just never quite get past like the the really good fighters in the division so regardless though he was a really good fighter and he went to war again with Matthew, Matthew Saad Muhammad. So, I mean, like, what are we at? Like, you know, half dozen, seven, eight wars for Saad Muhammad already. And this is like his title winning effort, you know? So, and, and this is even just where it starts to heat up. I mean, this is where it starts getting good. I mean, and a lot of this stuff by now was starting to be on TV too. So you could see almost all of these fights on uh, YouTube. Thank goodness. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, I mean, he, uh, uh, Matthew Saad Muhammad and Marvin Johnson, just went back and forth, but uh, there were, I can't remember what round it was. It was either fifth or sixth round where they're just like, you know, a good example would be because we've seen it so many times and seen clips of it and people might be able to relate to it. But that uh, portion in the fifth round of Morales Barrera one where they're against the ropes and they're both just like 
yes. you know, like yeah, just not yeah, even yeah. like moving their heads and just doing that type of shit. There's totally. a couple points where Saad Muhammad and Johnson just start kind of doing shit like that, but they're much bigger fighters who can both punch. And it's like, they're dinging each other around and like, it's like rock'em sock'em shit. It's great. Um, and I mean, again, it's just one of many wars but it was a really culminating moment for Matthew Saad Muhammad. Cause like you said, he had real difficulty earlier on in his career, staying consistent and getting wins. And it was clear that at this, at this point that he was like, he was on a tear, you know, like he was starting to peak and that he, he had kind of come into his own or whatever. And that embracing that kind of uh, identity as a warrior was, that's what got him over that. And he was like a welcome addition. Like he felt like he belonged in the in the wave of the late seventies, early eighties. You know, he's a good looking guy. He had a great smile, a great personality. Incredibly competitive um, division. Totally, and he just like he he made perfect for perfect television. He made good interviews. Um, he like I said, he looked well. So it was like he made just, everything was just made well for him. Like he was just a built in star. So the networks definitely wanted to feature him for his fights. You know. And like you said, the fun was just beginning at that point. Um, his first title defense is against former champion John Conti. Uh, Conti, again, another tremendous fighter who, at this point, though, um, he became champion around 1974. And so, I mean, he's kind of from like a slightly different era, but he's still been hanging on. His career was like going through like a little bit of topsy-turvy thing, you know. He got stripped of his belt. He was struggling a little bit here and there, but he was still a quality guy. He never really taken any beatings, and he's still a top performer. And he's a celebrity too. Like in yeah. they, in uh, the UK, he was definitely a celebrity. Totally, totally, a really, really popular fighter. Another guy who um who had fought on the states before too. Remember, he was featured. Uh, he was going to be a heavyweight at first, and he was featured on some Ali undercards, and um he worked with Ali, and then he asked Ali for advice, and Ali told him go back to light heavyweight. <laughs> Like, and that's what he did. So, and he thrived there. But anyways, like I said, now Conti had a chance to finally, he lost a close decision to Mati Palov, which he mm -hmm. fought, he, um, he got robbed of. He got stripped of his title before that. Like, you know, this was his redemption. And he put on a really inspired effort in this first fight. And it was a really controversial fight. And the fact that um, <clears throat> Saad suffered some nasty, gnarly cuts you know, which became, which become like a staple of his future fights, but some really nasty facial wear going on. And his cornermen used um, some substances that were definitely not legal. I don't remember what exactly they were, but they were stuff that clearly closed the cup of stuff that you weren't able to use. Mm -hmm. And back in the late 70s and early 80s, they were a little bit more lenient in terms of things you could use in the corner, as opposed to today where it's mostly just like, you know, Vaseline and pressure things and whatever, whatever like that. But even back then, they were just like, nah, 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 this is bullshit. What the hell are you using over here? You can't just use some kind of shit that's going to turn to cement and put it on your forehead. Like, that's that's not cool. So Saad ends up eking out a close decision. Like, Conti looked like he was on his game and it looked like he was going to pull it out. But Saad rallied and pulled out a really close decision. Another bill to swallow, another bitter pill to swallow for Conti. And the controversy was there that they were like, we need to have an immediate rematch. Yeah. <clears throat> The <clears throat> one of his cutmen, one of Matthew Saad Muhammad's cutmen, was a dude named Adolf Ritako, who was a local Philly guy, and he was a, he was a cutman, and he was a cutman for hire too. Um, and so, uh, it, I don't I don't want to go too far out in left field into it, but long story short is that like you could be kind of like a freelance cut person, 
Um, and so if somebody, if you came to a fight and you felt you needed a cut, uh, a separate cut man, and there was one there, you could potentially hire them on the spot and stuff like that. And he was somebody who would sometimes do that. Long story short, cut men, like it's a, it's like an ancient religion, dude, you know, and as you, I'm sure know, this was far more common back in the day. It's far more closely monitored now, but back in the day, cut, cut men used to make their own liniments and their own little solutions and oh, whatever. Yeah. Totally. And, and sometimes they'd literally like, um, I'm trying to think of who it was. It might've been like Al Cerdo or somebody. They would talk about how they had a little fucking leather bag that, you know, yeah. like one of the ones, like a doctor bag that, you know, like, you know, uh-huh. one of those motherfuckers and they would carry it around. And that they'd have all their solutions and their yes. tape and their scissors, all that type of shit. It was like a little doctor bag. And so that was not uncommon back in the day for, and Adolfo Taco was an old school, an old school guy went back and I want to say like the forties or fifties. <clears throat> so he had some sort of solution that he'd fucking concocted that had like green tea leaves or something like that. in it, at least according to box rec, uh, I've never, I don't think I've ever really truly looked it up, but in any case, um, yeah, so that's really not that. It's not that crazy, I guess. It's not like he was like putting fucking meth in his in his guts or something, you know. But regardless, it's still it's like you can't just put any old shit in there. That's not fair, you know. It's like you can't like let a fighter drink whiskey between rounds or some shit. That's not fair. So in any case, yeah, that controversy meant they had to they had to run it back. They did, and and it's interesting you bring up the leather case thing because years ago when I was uh, working at Brooklyn College for Hayden Kaplan's collection of memorabilia freddie brown's collection came in as well and one of the things that was in that collection maybe it was freddie was, brown but yeah it was like a famous cut man yeah. well no because i mean that was all of them though like all those cut men had, did, did the same thing they're all the same guys they probably traded secrets all that little fucking them. bowler cap but or some shit yeah he had the same you know i don't know if it was leather or whatever but he had some kind of satchel thing there and it was filled with all and it still had some solution in some of them shits bro like if you felt there was like these tubes of all these things and i'm like whoa and i wish you know, that's crazy. I had the foresight to be like, you know, I had a good enough camera phone back then to really take photos of the iPhone I had take. It went a wrap because that's all like amazing history right there, man. These are like the, the ointments and the things that he used on Marciano and Duran and countless other champions throughout yeah, the year. Who knows if that shit just got thrown out? Like, fuck. So, I mean, no, it's fascinating stuff. It, it is, but. Yes, at the end of the day, yeah, we could get caught just by. going into that for a day. But yeah, it's it definitely was crazy shit. Yeah, so he has a rematch, and Saad has one of his best performances and stops um cont- and after another, <clears throat> excuse me, shit. <laughs> after another defense, um, that's when the fun really starts beginning because now he has the rematch with Yaki Lopez. Um, oh, Yaki Lopez. Always a bridesmaid, never a bride. Um, and any other era definitely would have been a champion. I mean, you could say that for a lot of guys, but Lopez for sure, man. The guy was just a, a beast. You know what I mean? Like, but he was just he was caught again, like so many countless other fighters. He was caught in one of the worst errors you can possibly imagine to try and one of the most competitive errors to try to win a world championship. It just it is what it is. Yeah. And but Lopez came so close. God bless him. He really came so close, man. And in this fight with Saad Muhammad, dude, he put on probably the best performance of his career. Like lots of guys end up doing against Saad. They bring out, you know, Saad brings out the best of guys. He did. And, you know, like you mentioned with the Marvin Johnson fight, how they had that tremendous round. My, one of my, probably my favorite round of all time is round eight of Saad Muhammad Lopez. Because 
when you know it's already been a really good fight and a little very competitive fight sides cut as always but he looks like he's you know <laughs> his volume and everything is starting to take lopez over and when round eight happens and you see sides start really turning it up and you hear gil clancy and tim ryan who a grand those two added so much greatness to this drama of it um they hear him they're like look you know side's starting to really turn on here comes side here comes side he's hitting a boom 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 all of a sudden lopez starts countering with these beautiful vicious right hands at him and, and hooks to the body and you can see like the growl on his face he just comes bop bop and then side is just kind of like whoa whoa you know and then hits him again boom boom and then side starts smiling yeah, which was the smile. Kind of, when he started to smile, he was kind of hurt. And he let me lean back and let me just kind of ride this out a little bit. And <clears throat> you hear Gil Clancy, who I've criticized before as an announcer, but he was awesome here. He just gets really excited. And you hear him go, beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. Like, he, like he's a trainer right now or something. You know what I mean? Like he was just something he'd be yelling for Lopez to do it himself. So you hear him, beautiful, Tim. Oh, man, this, what a comeback. What a comeback. <laughs> and Tim Ryan is there trying to like, Oh man, inside Muhammad is hurt. Sides on the ropes, and he was hurt. And Lopez came back with this vicious volley, yeah. body shots, head shots, boom, 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 and he's landing all of them. But unfortunately for Lopez, Sad had Matthew Lopez. Saad Muhammad. Yes, he was built for this type of thing, man. He was just, you know, a shock absorber, and he took it. He took it. He took it. And before you know it, you know, Lopez started looking like all the boxcar opponents that Homer Simpson had to fight back in the day. You know what I mean? <laughs> Yeah, dude. Oh, and he man. starts he starts wearing out, starts getting like weary, and then side eventually stops him. But my god, that was a brutal fight. Yeah, dude, that was an incredible round. Really back and forth. And it was, I'm pretty sure it was round of the year. Uh no, absolutely. That Should year. Round of the decade when you think, oh yeah. no, you can't be because Howler Hearns happened. But <laughs> yeah, there's a well, there's a lot of really competitive fucking man. The 80s were really incredible for fights, bro. Like straight up. Like, I mean, there's a the, and that's so not, jealous of everyone who covered boxing that decade. <laughs> you know, I mean, you the, the people talk about golden eras and stuff like that. And there were a lot of shitty things about the 80s, but lot, usually when they say stuff like that or when they talk about that, that type of stuff, they're talking about the heavyweights though. Like they're not even, you know, like that's, they do say as, as the heavyweights go, so goes boxing. That's not really true. It's just true as far as, as people talking about it, you know, like it's not, there's all sorts of shit always going on. It's just that when we frame it, they're always talking about the heavyweights, but, um, but yeah, dude, the, the eighties had some really incredible fights and Matthew Saab Muhammad was in a whole bunch of them. That second Yaki Lopez fight was clearly, uh, if it's not the best fight of his career, it's like, you know, one of the top three or something like that. I mean, it's just an incredible fight. And Yaki Lopez, like you said, dude, came so close to winning a world title, uh, on a couple of different occasions and just got raw luck himself. He, he uh, was prone to cuts, prone to swelling, um, mm -hmm. didn't have the greatest defense, but was better than advertised though. He wasn't just some like punching bag, but he didn't have, I think his problem was that he was kind of slow. He didn't have very quick hands, didn't have quick feet. And that was, that was the big issue, but in just about any other era, his, his work rate and, you know, his, uh, just his heart you know the intangibles or whatever those would have pulled him through just about any and other come around just only a few years later in the mid 80s when you had the likes of you know slubbin and kakar uh kakar and um jb williamson 
and even Bobby Chez for that matter, you know, like um, vying for the titles. Like Virgil Hill, again, a few Hall of Famer, but a guy that probably actually would have beat Lopez. But um, you had Virgil Hill and then you had the rest of them. You can't tell me that he couldn't have beaten a guy like Leslie Stewart. So, but anyways. Yeah, I don't, I wouldn't have picked him against Virgil Hill, but just about yeah. anybody else during that time, sure. Totally. But, you know, to think about it, that was probably the beginning of the M facade. You know what I mean? Because oh, yeah. that, that fight definitely took a lot out of him. Um, he looked good against Lottie Mawali, <laughs> another guy who was a really tough contender there in the era. And that's a beautiful one punch knockout he scored. But fights yeah, after super that. Super dramatic, yeah. Yeah, man. It's poor Mawali because he suffered <laughs> really bad knockouts against a few guys. That's, that shit's <laughs> like that clip of Dave Chappelle on the Chappelle show with Godzilla. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Poor Mawali, man. He was a good fighter, but he actually he was. some highlight real knockouts against a few guys. Mustafa Muhammad yeah. scored a vicious one against him. Virgil Hill, a decade later, did the same. I mean, eh. but good fighter. Anyways, um, but then it was the fights after that again. He started really struggling. Bonzel Johnson, who was a good fighter, but no world beater, even in that era, he wasn't going to be like, you know, there was levels there, um, was given Saad the business for a number of rounds before Saad Raleigh. And then another guy we've talked about before, because his affiliation with the tough man circuit, Murray Sutherland, um, the first super middleweight champion. But again, yeah. certainly no one who was going to be a world, um, who was going to snip at the title um, back in the early 80s. And Saad went life and death with him. He was yeah, he gave him about all he could handle. Yeah, he was really struggling in that fight before he ended up scoring a come from behind knockout. And then his last successful defense was against another perennial contender. I mean, Saad went through the gauntlet. Let's, let's say it right there um another contender uh jerry the bull martin grinding really really tough dude um derail james scott uh derail james scott who was you know going through his run at rawway and gave everybody <laughs> business so Saad went through the ring at that point you know what i mean a number of wins number of stoppages only one fight going the distance in his whole title fight run and you would still hope that there was still going to be a lot going, but he was easy pickings at that point. So when Dwight Cowie ends up fighting him, ugh, it already would have been a tough style for him to handle as opposed to if he was still fresh, let alone what happened to him when he was just gone through the ring or so. Yep. He'd been softened up quite a bit. I mean, and even then, I, it's not like he, he was a shell of himself, but he was, he did still have a little bit. It's just that clearly, he had been ground down and he didn't have the punch resistance that he had previously. Like, it's like you only, he was a cat that had gone through like eight and a half lives. He didn't, yes. he didn't ha even have a full one left, you know? Um, but even then it was, he was a tough guy. You know, he, he was not going to be easy to put away. He wasn't going to be easy to run through. It was just that uh, Dwight Muhammad Kawi especially at light heavyweight was a bruising bruising fighter he was not an easy fighter to deal with and so like you said he would have been a difficult fighter for Saad to deal with pretty much at any time but at this point after he'd been softened up nah that second Yaki Lopez fight was clearly the decline because I mean like he was it, it wasn't abrupt but you could see that he was going downward from there for sure and after the first kawi fight it was like all right well i don't know how much he has left deep like dive with his career after the second after the second kawi fight because he got the shit kicked out of him that fight like it wasn't better than the second fight and <clears throat> you know he had one more highlight after that we talked about pete mcintyre before and the uh, jerry cory my cory podcast briefly but um 
that's a highlight reel knockout if there ever was one. And um, you see, yeah. like, kind of, he hits him with a right hand. McIntyre's throwing a punch at the same time. And after Saad hits him, McIntyre still goes through with the punch, but then, like, goes down. So he, like, hits him and he goes, <laughs> like, dramatically falls inside. Drop, you know, Ali puts yeah. his hands up as he goes down. And yeah. Yeah, it's some Julian Jackson shit. Like, you know, yes. gets him as he's fallen, just fucking. But uh, uh yeah, yeah was, I mean, that that's about all he had. Yeah, the, after that, there's a lot of, you know, stoppage losses. The majority of his losses came after that. And people would just be like, you know, please, you shouldn't. And it was tough, man, because Saad, he ran out of money. He lived a, he lived a very, you know, high-profile lifestyle in the early 80s. Lots of celebrities did. And he went, he blew through money. He went through other things. And with his skills diminished, and um, guys just used him as easy pickings. And we've talked about before, people being used as a name. It's not necessarily that you got to make money as a name. People just want to use you to pad their records, and that's what ended up happening to him. Unfortunately, yeah, I actually remember. I don't remember watching it, but I remember hearing about it like uh, around that time. I don't remember why, but the his loss to Andrew Maynard in the early nineties. Like, yes. I don't know what it was about that fight. Maybe it was that what Andrew Maynard was, you know, kind of an up and comer and stuff like that. But um, yeah, uh, there was even just between you know, those early 80s and the, whatever that was, 91, 92 with Andrew Maynard, dude, there's a lot of losses. There are a lot of losses there. And there are a lot, and there are in a lot of places there. Quality in Hotel Newark, Showplace Arena Mechanicsville, uh, Millsap Community Center, Weirton. I don't even know where the fuck Weirton is. I don't know what that state that is. Not even going to look. And then but sometimes yeah. you get sent overseas too to lose to some up and comer. So it's clear, yeah, like you, you nailed it. He was getting used for his name. Uh, he was still enough of a name, even into the late 80s and early 90s, that clearly he was being brought in to lose against a bunch of these fighters. So, you know, and that's unfortunately just kind of a typical story in boxing. But nonetheless, you know, clearly the guy was an incredible, incredible fighter, a great puncher and a serious action fighter oh man incredible and it's and just a hell of a nice guy too um he was really heard that yeah he was really popular and by the time he got inducted i believe his first year of eligibility i wasn't voting back then um he became a staple at the hall of fame for a number of years in the early years i would go to the hall so we're talking 2000 up until maybe 02 03 or so he was always there. He was there. He was really accessible to fans. He was cool. Um, he was training fighters and training young amateurs at that point in Philadelphia. So he, he would bring some of the, the young kids he was training um, with them to the Hall of Fame and stuff like that. And um, yeah, and he yeah, still looked good at that point. I know um, the fall after that was pretty sad and the stuff he had to go through with homelessness and other things that he went through. But um, yeah, man, Saad Muhammad had to be mentioned. I wanted to make, make sure I got him right off the bat. Just one of my all-time favorite fighters and um yeah yeah it was it was uh, a massive bummer when he died about 10 years ago mm -hmm. um because he hadn't been in the news very much but then he had been in the news for something like he he was doing something i can't remember what it was but it was some sort of like charity or yeah. um i can't specifically remember but he had been doing something it sounded like he was doing well and then he just kind of abruptly out of nowhere at least that i knew of 
uh, passed away. And I was like, oh, man, that sucks. Because he, was, he wasn't even that old. Wasn't. But <clears throat> I guess you kind of get used to that a little bit as a, as a fight fan. Um, but anyway, yes, I'm happy that you brought him up. Because Matthew Saad Muhammad is definitely a fun fighter to talk about. Somebody we should talk about. Another fighter that I definitely want to bring up. Uh, yeah. Fun fighter should be fun to recall because he was in our lifetime and recent enough that some, you know, younger listeners might remember him or watchers, viewers, whatever. Uh, Felix Trinidad. Tito. Oh, yeah. Yep. Definitely a legendary Puerto Rican puncher for sure. And yeah, the first fight actually that I ever attended in person was either what was it 92 or 93 uh, against um, Blocker. Maurice oh, Blocker. Wow. Yeah, the San Diego Sports Arena. And I mean, I, I don't remember a ton about it. I'm not going to lie. But like, nonetheless, I was there. Um, and San Diego Sports Arena, I don't even think that shit's called that anymore. <laughs> Definitely a, a very similar venue to like a Staples Center or something like that. Super similar to that. Um, but yeah, I remembered Felix Trinidad and his career very well for a handful of reasons, but also because he was super duper popular when, you know, you recently brought up on a different show when like boxing started kind of hitting the internet and you could yeah. discuss boxing on the internet or read writing about boxing on the internet. And it started actually kicking up. Felix Trinidad was at the top of his game and very, very popular. And so there was a lot of shit about Felix Trinidad around that time. So a lot of people, uh, you know, that, that was just recent enough that a lot of people will remember, you know, Trinidad's the first fighter I can remember that people were actively saying that Sugar Ray Robinson would have got dusted by him in like two to three rounds. <laughs> like, people were such on that train of him, man. Like, I don't Oh, my God, I hated it. Uh, he was supposed to go through Hopkins straight to Roy Jones. You know, I trained with, like, the, the gym I used to go to had a lot of kids. I had a lot of Spanish kids I trained with, and they were massive Trinidad fans. I mean, I get it, but, like, any time I disagreed with them about him not being the number one greatest fighter that ever walked the planet, they would just get so pissed off at Oy, me. Papa. <laughs> like, and when Hopkins ended up finally beating him, I yeah, I avoided them for a few days because they were that they were actually <laughs> like all the shit I was talking for a while. Yeah, but anyways, you know, going back, Trinidad, man, you know, when he first came on the scene, at, like you said, the Maurice Blocker fight, man, that was Trinidad was what twenty years old in that fight. He was still a baby. Yeah, he had that kind of like high top fade. Like he had the high top fade going on, which was funny because the way his head was shaped, so it just looked like a it looked like a table. Um, yeah, dude. And then he had that little pencil fin mustache too. Yeah, it looked like he was still like kind of going through age. It was like and still like, developing. Yeah, he was still developing totally. But my God, he could punch, man. And there was like question marks about it because this is the pre-internet era, you know, there's, he's undefeated and the hardcores know about him, but a lot of the general public don't. And when you see the way he blasted blocker, blocker had already been knocked out oh, a few man. times already. Like he was kind of damaged goods. Yeah, Terry he's Gore, another fighter who always kind of looked a little old too, in my opinion. Like yeah, he's just an old looking little, guy. Another one, man, with the weird sh bald head, you know, halo thing going on all there in the face, tall, really, really lanky, but not in the same sense that you would think oh he must be a big power puncher because he wasn't instead he was an awkward boxer and a good fighter for his era you know he beat marlon starling beat another a number of guys but by the time trinidad got to him 
he had already been through a vicious war with Simon Brown, which was which he was on the losing end of, and Terry Norris, who was terrorizing people at that point in time in the early '90s, ravaged Blocker. And if you ever seen that fight, it's it's pretty bad, man. Blocker had no idea what. Yeah, the hell he took happened. a couple. He took a couple thwackings, dude. Yeah, yeah. Norris thumped him bad in that one. So. That's what that's what Trinidad was coming into. So I mean, Blocker might have been damaged goods, and Trinidad just again, Blocker took a, a was knocked unconscious, vicious knockout. Do you actually remember seeing that? Like, were but, you close to the ring to see that, or? Uh, no, like we weren't that close. We were up in the stands and stuff like that. But I remember, remember like the, I I remember the result. Yeah, yeah, yeah because yeah. that shit was memorable. Because he was face planted, bro. I was like 10, 11. and I he but he was like, you know, yeah, face planted. Yeah, yeah. And I remembered, um, but he, uh, Terry Norris fought somebody on the undercard and it was like, and that was, that was what everybody was like, maybe? shit. God dang it. Nah, I can't remember. I should, I should have, I should have looked at this. I should have been prepared. Uh, yeah, it was, no, it was, uh, Terry Norris and Troy waters. Oh, okay. And, and so everyone was all excited or maybe that was the main event, but everybody was more excited for Terry Norris. Cause he trained out in Campo which is like a no, not even a suburb. It's a it's way the fuck out there. Campo is like, Campo is like almost maybe it's different now, but Campo was the middle of nowhere when I was growing up. Like it was like, it was like the middle of the fucking desert. But that's where Terry Norris and Orlin Norris trained at this uh, compound out in Campo. But but uh, they had either been in and or, or around San Diego a whole bunch of times and for a number of years, and so they're fairly popular. And also San Diego didn't have like a ton of, uh, you know, Paul Vaden, like they didn't have a ton of fighters, but around this time, yeah, Paul Vaden, he was like a couple other fighters, but so anybody who, who was from San Diego, people were like, Oh shit. So that's what everybody was all concerned about, uh, on that card. But I do remember the result and that's exactly where kind of like the legend began or whatever, you know, that's where everybody got their first glimpse. And that was when he started really turning it on in the division. Oh my god, man! It was it was just a brutal knockout. So after he did that, people were just like excited, but still a little skeptical because they're like, "Oh, he's still young." I think he had already been dropped at this point too in a prior. And he didn't. He, he never looked like much. You know, he wasn't no, very he muscular. He like he was really easy to blow over. Like you know, all you needed was someone just really slight. Yeah. yeah. So I don't know if it was his first huddle defense or second or whatever. No, I think his first one might have been against Luis Garcia. Because he blasted the shit out of Garcia too. Garcia was yeah. another contender, um, kind of an unknown, but he had given both Maurice Blocker and um, Meldrick Taylor fits in their fights, losing close decisions. So when Trinidad absolutely flattened him, people were like, "Oh, okay, that was impressive." But then he fights soon. Um, he also fights. Uh, what's what's that guy? Uh, I'm not looking at his record. Um, Anthony Stevens. Anthony Stevens. Yeah. Anthony Stevens at that point. Would end up becoming a respectable contender, but he was an unknown, nondescript dude with a with a spotty record. Someone that Trinidad should have blasted, and instead Trinidad gets dropped and goes life and death with him. Yeah. And that's when people were like, "Ah, oh, man, nah, he's just a kid. He's not ready for this." And yada yada yada. Uh, um, Don King's matchmaker said that if he matched him with Camacho, Camacho was going to murder him. You know, like this was this was the things that he was going through. But Trinidad slowly ended up developing himself that people were just like oh my god i, can't, I need to see him against De La Hoya. i need to see him against trent um yeah whitaker so 
Well, along the way too, like, I mean, he went to Camacho and chased Camacho around the ring for like, you know, 12 rounds. Camacho was like, I'm good. Fuck this dude. Like, yeah, he didn't want no part of that. And he won a fairly easy decision, but then he went in against, uh, uh, Yori boy campus and gets knocked down, you know, in that fight too. And obviously comes back and just fucking. And that was did. the fight. I think that turned a leaf for him with everybody. Cause like, yeah, the Camacho fight, like you said, that was a good, that was a big win. But everybody knew, like Camacho again was already the runner that he was, and he didn't really try to win. He, that was that wasn't that competitive. Yeah, but no, he was not even the campus fight because campus was undefeated, known as a monster knockout artist. I'd been featured on television. He's fifty six and zero. Yeah, and a lot of people were excited about him, man. He had beaten the shit out of a lot of guys, and I think a lot of people were expecting campus to knock out Trinidad as well. So when campus landed that short left hook and Trinidad went down, a lot of people were ringside and around, you know knowledgeable people were just kind of nodding silently to each other like mm -hmm, okay we know but as you can say man what happened soon after that well <laughs> campus got caught up against the ropes and almost fucking decapitated like God. like like a just one of those really ugly stoppages where like a dude's head gets caught in like the wrong position yeah. where like he was like you know he got fucking Oh, brutalized anyway yeah but that was really i think um in the next stretch of fights dude you could see and i remember this being written about at the time like you could drop felix trinidad you could drop him you could hurt him you know he you could hit him it's just that when that happened i mean it's cliche or whatever but it seemed to wake him up like it pissed him off if you knocked him down it was like and and also on top of that he'd go to his corner and his dad be like fucking smacking him in the fucking face and shit and you'd be like whoa whoa like his dad's hitting him harder than that fool over there and you know he, and then it would be like he'd be like oh oh okay, okay i guess i need to go punch this guy and he'd go fucking punch the shit out of him so i mean you know there were a number of fighters who wound up dropping him uh and some of the guys some of the guys that dropped him like were not super great it was just that he wound up getting up and brutalizing the shit out of him. For, it was for the second record. round for whatever reason, man. Trinidad had a bad, like, he was always a slow starter. First round, he would barely yeah. do anything. He would just always just kind of analyze what was going on and just probe a little bit. Second round, he'd get clipped and get dropped. Uh, I Don't ask me why, but it always kind of happened. I think Campus dropped him around the second round. Uh, Obakar, which was his next fight after the Campus fight, dropped him in the second round. Um you know, uh, soon after that, he got dropped again in the second round. I think, what was it, Lushing or someone like that, Kevin Lushing? And, I mean, like, you know, but that was like you said. If he got woken up, all you had to do is drop him. All of a sudden, you know, the gears turned on a little bit, and that was going to be your ass sooner or later because that's when he was going to start churning out the heat. And once he started churning out the heat, you know, eventually you were going to get brutalized and beat up or you were straight up going to get cold cocked and concussed. <laughs> Yeah, and and I mean, like he he went through what was it? Uh, I want to say he made like either 15, 16 defenses yeah. or something like that of the IBF welterweight title. So I mean, the division at this point was not it wasn't an incredible division, it wasn't a great division, but it was a pretty solid division. And it seemed clear though because Oscar De La Hoya had been coming up in his own right. You know, he dropped down to one thirty to nab some you know kind of bullshit title, but then like you know had gone up and seemed to grow pretty well into welterweight and uh between them they fought a pretty good spread of welterweights you know like it was a it was a decent welterweight division not great but pretty good and mm -hmm. so between them they cleared it out and it was clear that they needed to like man they got to fight like what the fuck you know ones with don king ones with 
top rank we get it but like they got to fight and this was just another kind of classic case it seemed at first that like they weren't going to fight because there were too many conflicting interests and you know there was i remember a lot at the time being written about that too like oh this is bullshit you know this fight's got to be made and blah 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 and then they wound up coming together to make it uh one of those fights where it was too big not to make and etc felix Trinidad had gone through pernell whitaker you know pernell was pretty big at the time obviously but at the same time had had his and that was the fight originally, not to cut you up, but that was the fight originally to that the the world was clamoring for before Delahoy had moved up yep. to welterweight, you know? Well, and and it makes sense too, because I mean, like it would make sense that uh, you know, considering Pernell Whitaker's status and considering how great he was, but dude, it was just the wrong time in his career, dude. He was going through so much outside the ring shit. Yeah. And it was clear that he was in the twilight of his career. He was uh, not a big welterweight whatsoever. And so going in against, you know, Felix Trinidad, like, yeah, dude, it was not, he was never going to be destined to win that fight at that time. Some other version of Pernell Whitaker, sure. But at that time, man, that was bad. So, yeah, I think that it was really anticlimactic uh, compared to what people were hoping for and expecting. People were demanding for Trinidad to have a big fight for a while, and that was Don King pulling some shenanigans. We almost got Trinidad um, Whitaker, or it looked like it was going to be on that way at least, um, in, ni- in late 1995 when they shared a double, when they shared, when they co headlined on an HBO card. And Trinidad at that point had always been a Showtime fighter. So when he appeared on HBO to fight um, Larry Barnes, and Whitaker fought Jake Rodriguez, people were like, oh, shit, you know, now this time I think we can finally make this fight and move it on. But nah, immediately afterwards, Trinidad was right back on Showtime, beating guys like Rodney Moore and um, a shot, Freddie Pendleton and Ray, uh, Rudy Lovato and Kevin Lushing. Like, and people were just like, you know, really? What the hell? Now it looks like Trinidad's going to fight Terry Norris, though, right? This was like the super fight that people were excited about. Norris is with King. Trinidad's with King. It's an easy fight to make. And it looks like that fight's actually going to happen. I think Norris either bolted at that point to Bob Arum or something happened around that. Yeah, this was 97. So this is when Norris bolted to Arum for the Delahoya fight, which he felt was going to be more lucrative. And now Trinidad's in limbo again. And he's just kind of like, what the fuck? You know? So now he, instead he has to fight Troy Waters, which is a hell of a drop down from fighting Terry Norris at Madison Square Garden. So, like you said, man, by the time he fights Whitaker, it's really anticlimactic because all the Whitaker's out of the ring issues. And Trinidad, who's been on the scene since 93, is his big fight that he's finally been begging for, demanding for, that the world's demanding for against De La Hoya. It's been six years um, since he had big, since there's like a, been a mega fight, and they're like, you know, this is the time to make it. And when that fight finally happens, Trinidad still can't get like that defining moment. Yes, he wins the fight, but it was so like controversy behind it and Delahoy's performance and Trinidad not looking amazing himself and just being a letdown in general that it like overshadowed everything. <laughs> Dude, the one of the lasting memories for me is, and it might be, it might have been um, legendary nights that help cement this for me. Yeah. But the shot of Oscar Deloya walking through the hallway and he's like, shit, I thought I won that. <laughs> <laughs> and I've never really heard him say like curse before that. And then when you hear him and it sounds so like on a He's like, motherfucker. Yeah. Oh, Shit. Jeez. <laughs> like stamping around like a kid who lost a super like, you know, bro, that was your fault. All right. That was your fault. 
and, and then you he, he always so clancy to tell you running around when you when your instincts that have told you to stand there and you clearly were you know, faster than him. And well, and and you know what, dude? Like he always had some he had, he had gone through so many trainers and always had some excuse or whatever. And and I I don't have any issue with Oscar's career or whatever. Like I don't I was oh, never no, but, incredible resume. But I mean, yeah, dude, there was there was always some thing or some excuse or some outside whatever. And so I, I don't want to fucking hear it, bro. But hey, dude, like he had, he defeated, he pulled it, uh, pulled it out to defeat Ike Corte. Some people yeah. thought Ike should have won that fight. I thought that that last round or that last minute knockdown uh, pulled it out for De La Hoya. Like it was close as fuck, but he salvaged it kind of. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he had defeated Julio Cesar Chavez. Ray Torres almost lost his life afterwards <laughs> in the fucking process. We talked about <laughs> that shit. No, but you know, like I said, between Trinidad and De La Hoya, they'd basically cleaned out welterweight. So I mean, it made sense, but so so fucking anticlimactic once that happened. But I mean, at the at the very least, though, what it did do was it kept Felix Trinidad's career momentum, though. Uh, you know, getting that win, and it was almost like once he moved up to 154, you know, he beat the absolute fucking absolute shit out of David Reed. Poor David Reed, who had already you know kind of been fast-tracked and had uh, his eye already, like, in terrible shape and whatnot. But, like, after that, it was, like, people just – people didn't even care. Like, you know, they didn't really care that he – that the 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 Oscar De La Hoya fight wasn't, wasn't very good. He, you know, uh, Mamadou Tiam's eye – I is that guy – did he ever get his eyesight back? Man, that shit was awful. Yeah, and sure. I mean, point being, you know, 154 pounds, dude. Felix Trinidad looked absolutely phenomenal. Um, so nobody gave. Yeah, a I mean, about that Oscar was incredible. Like, I don't think he was even more deadly than he was at welterweight because at 154 he wasn't starving himself, at least not as much the way he was at welterweight because people knew he was struggling with his weight there. And dude, man, he just like the Reed fight. I thought Reed was gonna win. I'm like, I'll always admit it, man. I can say that I always like underestimated Trinidad in a lot of big fights. And he would pull them out. And in the Reed fight, I thought Reed had the tools in the first few rounds. I was nodding to myself too. I'm like, yeah, man, look at Reed. He's too fast for him. Yada, yada, yada. And then look what happens. Trinidad starts like, you know, catching wind. He starts timing Reed. And then, like you said, it's one of the worst ass kickings you'll ever see um, televised. And poor Reed's career never recovered from that. That's when that's when Trinidad started becoming a career altering uh, career altering. I was just I was just gonna say that was right around yeah that and then plus the Vargas fight was like that was when people were like oh he's changing lives oh shit you know and he was it was bad I mean Vargas to his credit somehow recovered from that first round because most guys wouldn't have and yeah he clearly got like concussed in that first round you know oh yeah oh yeah. You see his face, man. He uh, he had no idea what the fuck's happening in that day. Yeah, he just eyes are rattling around. His head is probably scrambled a bit. So he just, I mean, it was bad. He was cold. He came out really cold. And Trinidad, who, like we've said before, usually a slow starter for whatever reason, came out there and just blasted him. And, you know, Vargas will never be compared to Willie Pep when it comes to defense. So he was just kind of right there for it. And yeah, man. But, and the... You know, the train kept on rolling, though, for him, because now after he beats up Vargas and there's really nothing else to prove at junior middleweight, you ruined the two Olympians that were going to fight each other. Um, he moves up to middleweight. And people are thinking now at this point, now now, now this is when the, the talk is starting to happen because it's 2001, House of Boxing is out, um, these other boxing websites are out, the early message boards are out. And 
fans yeah. now are able to vent and explain, you know, express their feelings of how much they love Trinidad and their other favorite fighters, mostly Trinidad. Yeah, um, mostly Roy Jones Trinidad. was getting a lot of attention too. Roy was getting a lot of That's attention. That's true. Yeah. Whenever Mike Tyson wasn't in trouble with the law, he had his followers as well, but he was always just yeah. kind of on the back burner. But Roy and Trinidad, man, but Trinidad was really build, building momentum. And a lot of people were starting to believe that if they ever fought, Trinidad was going to beat Roy Jones and then be anointed the greatest fighter that ever walked the planet. So when he fights William Joppy and Don King's middleweight tournament that he created for HBO around 2001, um, that was a big fight at MSG. And a lot of people consider it the um, best atmosphere that they've ever attended. Like, I, I've, we watched it. I mean, it looks absolutely incredible. But um, that was a fight again too man i'd watch joppy and i should have known better man joppy wasn't a huge bit away kind of a short guy and even though he had fast hands and everything he wasn't like you know spectacular in any way he just was during an era that was he'd held a belt for a while he did but it wasn't really a strong era yeah don't get me wrong like yeah and he and he also was like often like making defenses in like some fucking far-fung places against some fucking you know featured against like you know in a trilogy with julio caesar green on showtime being right or sharing a double header had had a double header with um keith holmes or something right so i should have known better but i thought joppy was gonna beat trinidad dumbass And then again, man, Trinidad thrashes him and basically ruins Joppy's career. So Dude. all roads ahead to Bernard Hawkins. Yeah, definitely one <laughs> Which of is the those. anniversary is about to come up with that fight. That's true. That's coming up really soon. But like, uh, you know, fucking Joppy, dude. Just one of the classic, like, talking shit and then getting wrecked like 10 seconds later type of clips. Because he's like... I, I don't remember. I I don't even think you could see what he's saying because he's saying something to Trinidad. It's like he's saying "come on" or something like that because he's going, you know, "come on," that type of shit. And like five <laughs> seconds later, Tito's just like pop, 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 and then he fucking gets knocked down. It's like, oh, buddy, oh man. Jaffe wasn't bad defensively. Like I don't know what he decided to stay up there when these guys think they could take Trinidad's punch. But I mean, like, and then Trinidad after that too. You remember that movie pulled, which was such a punk move to him. Where he just grabbed Joppy's face like grabbing a toddler, <laughs> the, and he just looked like that to him and just kind of pushed him to the ropes. I was like, oh, really? For a while, there was there was a photo of that going around. I don't know if it's still around, but I remember on the message boards for a while, okay. like people had yeah, people were posting photos of that because someone had caught the photo of him yeah, like, yeah. and it looks like he's trying to like squeeze Joppy's head or something because Joppy's face is like, you know, holy yeah, shit, yeah, yeah. and that's just like you know like he's a small child or something but uh man bad bad decision and he got absolutely fucking flattened in that one but you know a lot of people a lot a lot of people especially after that thought that there was no way bernard hopkins was going to survive felix trinidad and i remember uh twice not only did bernard hopkins one time snatch the puerto rican flag and throw it down he did that shit again in puerto rico and almost died. Like I remember seeing on the news, they were like, watch the scene as boxer Bernard Hopkins throws. And there's like a stampede of people. They're like, fuck no, bro. (laughs) Like he almost lost his fucking life that day. So he's lucky, but he obviously accomplished what he's trying to accomplish. Cause uh, you know, it, it made him the villain and it made it. So people were like, Oh, Felix straight has pump now, you know? But there was there was so much shit going on around that time, man. That was so weird. Uh, the fight was supposed to happen on September 11th, 
weekend and then September 11th, it was, I want to say it was like the 17th or some shit. And uh, September 11th happened and they obviously postponed it. But mm-hmm. then when they postponed it, you know, it was, it was just weird, dude. So much stuff from around that time was so weird, bro. Like, you know, even just if you watch that full, um, that full broadcast, you know, they're constantly mentioning it. They're constantly talking about like, there's firefighters in the crowd. There's policemen in the crowd. You know, there's. There's this, there's that, there's the fucking the American. For that fight was it Smoger? Uh, I I think so, yeah. Because I, I remember mean, in the pre-fight, like the pre-fight thing, and I think Merchant called him out on this. He was like going on, guys, we gotta remember what this means tonight. He was like giving some spiel about 9/11, and Merchant was like, "Is that even necessary?" There's like the American flag on fucking everything, you know. Like yeah. I think that even on the on the little ticker, like on the. Chiron. Yeah, it was. It was. Like there's, oh. yeah, there's the American flag down on the little ticker and shit. Anyway, it, it was. It was just one of those things. That at the same time, it was totally weird. But I feel like since it was one, of, it might. I'm not sure. It might have been the first major event after post 9/11, and definitely in New York in terms of like sports or whatever to take place. But um, yeah. I think New York in particular, the country himself, whatever, was looking forward to something that just didn't involve what the you know the tragedy that transpired you know what i mean and yeah everything was really themed around what was going on but i think everybody was just like happy to be like hey we can concentrate for a night on some other shit and but yeah man trinidad it just with that fight hopkins was at his peak even though people thought he might have been a little bit past it clearly he was bigger he just he had a perfect game plan could take what trinidad could dish out he bullied him around to show that he was the bigger, stronger man, and just, and it was like a prolonged beating too. Like Hop, like a Hopkins from the from the '95 or so probably would have tried to taken him out earlier. The Hopkins of 2001, who was much more, you know, scientific and much more just kind of brutal in his approach too, man. When you think about it, he was much more sadistic in how he just like laid that out. He just kept on beating him, beating him, beating him. And Trinidad, who had finished so many careers earlier on the guys that we just mentioned before that who laid in his wake, his career had never, never recovered from this. Hopkins really beat the hell out of him. And not only was it a physical beating mentally too, man, because like Trinidad hadn't lost at this point. This was a guy, <coughs> excuse me. This was a guy who disrespected him on his home turf, on his Island, threw down his flag, talked shit the entire promotion. And then just beat him up and knocked him out when he couldn't do anything with him. And Trinidad's career never recovered from that. Yeah, he had that comeback um, soon after. You know, he beat Tiam. Well, not Tiam. Poor Hasin Sharifi. Yeah, another balding. <laughs> yeah, another balding middleweight. Balding matter. Frenchman. <laughs> yeah. Um, but aside from, the, you know, the excitement that he had when he came back and knocked out Ricardo Mayorga, um, that was basically the end of Trinidad's career. And you know what, dude? I I hadn't even thought to say this, but I, I will say it just because it's relevant to what we're talking about with the puncher conversation. But <clears throat> before the fight, so right before the fight, uh, on, on fight night, Nassim Richardson, you know, may he rest well, yes. wound up being the person from Bernard Hopkins' camp from his corner who was watching Felix Trinidad get his hands wrapped according to him by the time he had gotten into the dressing room one of Felix Trinidad's hands were already wrapped 
and he was not there to watch it be wrapped. And so he demanded it be rewrapped. Um, I'm not mixing this up with the Margarito thing. Am I? No, Fuck, no. I don't think so. No, I'm pretty sure. No, no, no. Yeah. Yeah. No, because that was what the delay was about. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because he was also the one who got the Margarito shit, but in it any case, extra padding, wasn't it? Uh, that was, well, so what the whole thing was briefly that Felix Trinidad senior, who by this time, obviously a very well-known trainer, he had actually used a method called stacking, which is where you alternate layers of tape and gauze on the knuckles. But it's also uh, different in that I believe that you apply the tape directly to the skin. Mm. And so like there's, anyway, New York doesn't allow that. Nevada does or did at the time. And so it was kind of like, depending on where you were, it was allowed or not allowed. And so it wasn't something nefarious per se. And on, and in fact, Nevada, the Nevada State Athletic Commission had adopted that style for the official, like, safest hand wrapping method. Okay. Uh, and they had actually flown Felix Trinidad Sr. in for like to do like a seminar and shit. Like, anyway, it's that's not that important. But um, so because of that, uh, Felix Trinidad lost immediately after that. And a fairly well-known writer at the time who was at Max Boxing wrote an article titled Cheeto Trinidad question mark and got Felix, uh, I'm sorry, got Fernando Vargas. Um, it was Fernando Vargas and it was uh, Joppy and it was somebody else, but I can't remember who the third person was and basically got quotes from them. Um, and I'm not sure how these quotes were gotten, like, I mean, but it, they almost seemed as if they were lead, like the questions that being asked were leading questions because they were saying shit like, fuck, yeah, I always knew that his hands were, you know, his wraps were loaded. You know, I always knew that he loaded his gloves, he had blood, you know, all this sorts of shit, because the insinuation was that because Nassim Richardson had caught this error, that then this is how Felix Trinidad got all these knockouts the whole time. That he, you know, that they had fucked with his hand wraps and that it was, and, uh, you know, Fernando Vargas was saying shit like it was like getting hit with concrete and it was like getting hit with somebody who had like rocks in there, you know, shit like that. And so, long, I'm not even gonna fucking mention this writer's name because the guy's such a low life piece of shit. But it, I literally, to this day, to this fucking day, bro, from the Boxing History account, if I post shit about Felix Trinidad, people are like loaded wraps and I'm like, and i'm just like dude wow how pers how persistent that shit has gone on is it's how long it's persisted is fucking awful in any case i'm not going to make a big thing out of it but it sucks because like i said we're talking about it as like one of the greatest punchers mm -hmm. so it's relevant to that conversation it just sucks that that's unfortunately where it goes to for sure for sure man but regardless i mean that was just one of those things like you said it was a miscommunication on how he wrapped hands it wasn't outright cheating where you saw some plaster of paris or some dumb shit being put on the wraps or god forbid um louise resto you have like got you know actual padding removed from, from the gloves from the yeah glove. yeah so um Trinidad was just a great fighter man very very popular the popularity that he had in puerto rico compared to others is unfathomable he's still beloved yeah still still uh beloved and i've talked to a lot of people like you know anyone that's from puerto rico that lives in new york or male and female um 
I remember I was talking to these girls one time. They told me I forgot what island they said they were from over there, but um, they said they were like, oh, you know, um, I just asked them. They were, I was like, you follow boxing too much? They're like, oh, you know, we know names, whatever. And I was like, what do you think about Kodo? Oh yeah, Kodo's cool. We like, you know, he's kind of like they just kind of whole hum about it. Yeah. And I said, what about Tito Trinidad? They both their faces lit up. Tito, oh man, everybody loves Tito. You serious? Everybody, you still love everybody oh you know they got really excited we all love tito yeah yeah he's still beloved because they always felt tito was always one of them he would always go back and be celebrated and you would see it after a win after a big win the way the whole place would just celebrate and go because he was one of them and he would never shy away from the worst areas of the slums or wherever anything like that his people were his people and he was proud to be amongst them as opposed to other people who kind of keeps arms lengths away or their personalities didn't really translate into yeah. Well, M- Miguel Cotto was always kind of like a little more quiet, a little more like yeah. pensive, you know, Observe. he was exactly. And, and I mean, but it was almost always like the, one of the first fucking, some of the first words out of Felix Trinidad's mouth was some shit about being Puerto Rican yep. or be or loving Puerto Rico or, you know, like Viva Puerto Rico or something, you know, and, and oh, the fans yeah. loved that shit. And he was really a man of the people. And <laughs> yeah, I don't think they hated Miguel Cota or anything. It's just they didn't love him the same way. They still don't, the way that Felix Trinidad just loved. Totally, totally. So, yeah, man, that's a good call. I love talking about Trinidad, even in my Because we all, like you said, it's you can reminisce and think back on that time period, and we lived through it and know what was going on in boxing at that point and all that. Hell so, yeah. Cool, but uh, to stay on the subject of Puerto Rico, I guess it's good to segue into another all-time great from that island. That would be Wilfredo Gomez course dude bazooka definitely man um my opinion the greatest junior featherweight of all time and just easily one of the greatest punchers of all time the guy was an absolute animal and definitely another one who was featured a lot on network television and just tv in general and a very popular fighter in the in the 70s and early 80s unfortunately a one... fighter man as a low weight fighter is pretty awesome Unfortunately, one that if if he knocked you down, there was a pretty decent chance he was also going to punch you while you were down. He was another yeah, one of those fighters yeah, that did that shit a lot. He was a very nasty guy too, man. He carried a chip on the shoulder. It wasn't the most polite dude in the ring, and yeah, he was he was a mad. Play, like in the same in the same sense of like uh, Roberto Duran, yeah, very macho and like took pleasure in just really beating the shit out of somebody and watched them suffer at his expense. One, yeah, well, Roberto Duran's a good, he's a good uh, example because just one of those fighters were like, you're going to have the fucking audacity to, to yeah. get up from that <laughs> knockdown? You're going to fuck, oh, you're going to get up? All Talk right. Talk while he's down, beg him to get he's... up and then go up there and pummel him some more. To yeah, and then just beat his ass for getting up. You know, it's like, Jesus. Yes, a really sadistic uh, and an incredible puncher too. Like you said, easily one of the best uh, 122 pounders of all time, if not the best. Um, but when it came to exiting the 122 pound division, just had the unfortunate, you know, like we've talked about before, so many other fighters just came along at the wrong time, wrong era. Um, but you know, did what he could and did and was an incredible uh, fighter. Had some really great wins, but just kind of gets remembered for a couple of those losses, unfortunately. But, dude, that run at 122 is badass. I mean, his first pro fight, like, he had a very storied amateur career. Um, we we talked about before on our earlier show, and I, we have to bring it up on this one as well. He lost to um, a Sugar Ray Leonard stable mate, Derek Holmes, I think, in the World Championships or whatever he was 
knocked out, but other than that, I mean, Gomez had a, an outstanding amateur career. When he turned pro in 74, his first pro fight is a draw against um, a guy by the name of uh, Jacinto Fuentes, if I'm saying his name right. And after that, though, that's when it'd be, he has a perfect record from there up until the Salvador Sanchez fight where he scored every one of his fights. Not only is it a perfect record of winning every single fight, he scores knockouts in all of them. And they're not just like, you know, whatever, like he's knocking the living shit out of dudes or just brutalizing them, including a rematch with Fuentes who a few fights later, he avenges that draw with another knockout. So, you know, moving on before he fights for his first world title, Gomez is fighting, you know, I mean, not like absolute world beaters, but he's fighting good fighters himself too with, you know, the best name on his record with, um, was perennial contender at the time and future world champion Alberto uh, Davila, who he stopped. And um, <clears throat> from there, his first world title fight is in 1977 in Puerto Rico. He fights um, Dong Kyung Yum, um, fighter from Korea, very tough guy. Gomez gets dropped early on. It's a back and forth war, but Gomez ends up stopping him. And that's when that reign of terror begins. You know, I mean, his first defense in the Royal Kobayashi. Um, former champion from the past, good, really, really good fighter, and Gomez thrashes him, you know? Um, Juan Antonio Lopez is another name. You can just go through it if you go on box strike until we've talked about the, the Carlos Zarate fight, where that was the first one, two pure punches. Zarate at that point, 52-0. Gomez undefeated all of his wins by knockout himself, but Zarate is the proven commodity. And even though there's like, you know, some factors going on in it, like, you know, both guys struggled to make ways. Zarate was probably, um, apparently he was battling the flu, whatever it was, the Gomez beat the shit out of that fight. That was just a absolute beat down thrashing. And the first time you really saw Gomez go over and start beating the guy while he was down. Cause Zarate was down clearly in all fours. So Gomez ran over, thumped him again, <laughs> talked some shit to him, probably spit on him or whatever. And then got pulled away. And since they were in Puerto Rico, no one was going to do anything about it. Yeah, them. no fucking way. <laughs> you know what I mean? Absolutely not. Yeah, and, and, on, and on top of that, he had already by that point gone and made uh, some defenses overseas. Yeah. So, I mean... It was a junior featherweight division, and you're talking this still, this is the late 70s at this point. Yep. How many guys, it's not like a lot of Americans are, you know, at 122. I mean, now there is, but like back then, fuck no. Absolutely not. These divisions were still made, consisted of mostly foreigners. So yeah, Gomez was going to Japan. Gomez was going to Thailand for defenses. Totally. Yeah, and it well, and I mean, it makes sense too because, like you said, uh, the lower weight divisions, and even now, like there's some fight about getting some people interested in lower weight divisions, or if not interested, mm-hmm. getting people to pay, getting people to in like networks that is, you know, getting people to actually pay decent money for these lower weight fighters. So yeah, it makes sense. But even so, point is, he went overseas and he had become, you know, that's not something you'd see a lot from a lot of champions these days necessarily. You know, you'd probably be more likely to just hang out around home or whatever, if possible. Um, But even so, yeah, very, very good fighter. But one of the things that starts to become also a theme is that because he's so hard charging, like the guy is one of those fighters that he has very good power, but he throws super hard and uh, he can get caught. He can walk straight into punches. And so that's the kind that's the kind of thing that starts to happen uh, throughout his career. Even though he's getting these knockouts, he's hittable. He can be hit. He can be knocked down. But he is a bear, dude. Like, you piss him off, he's a tough, tough guy to hold and off. Then, you know, if you want to compare him a little bit, similar and slightly in style to Edwin Valero. I don't think he was as wild as Valero became when Valero, like, really 
started you know being featured on television or like getting his name really out there but like if you watch them especially like if you watch that Valero like you know inspiring sessions early on um there's similarities there in terms of like their aggressiveness their style the way they overwhelm guys and everything too and the way they are can be a little bit hittable Go, and the thing that's kind of maddening about that is that Gomez had r- ridiculous reflexes. He had great defense. When he didn't want to be hit, he wasn't hit. Like, he really had good head movement. But sometimes, like you said, when he got caught up in those flurries and really started dropping bazookas on you, you know, multiple punch combos, yeah, he would go right there and just kind of, look, you know, you could catch him. Absolutely. But these poor guys at 122, they, they couldn't do anything with him. And Gomez was a big dude at that point. He was already having weight trouble before 1980. Yeah. Hit. It's kind of remarkable that he was able to last as long as he did at 122. Because if you go on box rec, you'll see it right there before uh, the, I think his debut at MSG uh, against um, Baba Jimenez, he has to shed six pounds, like you said, over there. You know, in other fights, he has to shed pounds. Um, before he fights Nicky Perez in 1979, Nicky Perez is one of those guys who had a really built up kind of strange record built up in Arizona and, you know, see the areas of Vegas and other West Coast spots. He gets a fight with Gomez at MSG. And in the Ring Magazine article, when they were talking about that, before the fight, Gomez was pissed off. He was irritable. He had to make weight. He was struggling to make weight. Perez was talking shit to him beforehand, so Gomez was even more pissed off about that because he was, you know, just the irritable guy to begin with. And then he, then he brutalized the poor kid. And um, <clears throat> from there, uh, I would have to say his most pro- – his most – high-profile defense came in early 1980. Well, not early, in mid-1980, excuse me. And that was against the guy that I mentioned right before this, his old amateur nemesis, Derek yep. Holmes. Yeah, while I'm getting that revenge win over Derek Holmes, who, I mean, at this point, by this time, you know, you obviously uh, can't gauge some shit that happened years ago in the amateurs and fighters develop at different rates and have different ceilings and stuff like that. And clearly Derek Holmes, who was a good fighter, nonetheless was just not, you know, he was not up to this task at this point. And there's no shame in that. Cause like you said, at 122 pounds, dude, Gomez is easily one of the greatest ever, if not the greatest. And he had basically, and you know, cleaned out the fucking division. The division was, you know, he'd fought, anybody and everybody from any country or whatever he didn't give a fuck and so uh you know that's one thing that you gotta hand it to him his team don king whoever it was that was you know taking on all comers um that made him a star in the division but he might have stayed just a little bit too long and wore his body out i don't know also too he was a hard living guy you know what i mean um the homes fight was just that's that's one of the more brutal fights that was ever televised in the, in the modern era, Joey Curtis was an idiot in that one. Um, Gomez knocked down Holmes multiple times. Holmes suffered a fractured jaw, a uh, broken tooth, yeah. just a, a bad, bad beating. Gomez was uh, taunting him verbally. Every time he knocked him down, was going right up on him and talking shit to him. Like, it was, it's really, really bad. He was, like, way too tough for his own good that night. Yeah, was, and he kept on, and any other, yeah, it, it was, it was bad to watch, but from there, soon enough, you know, there was rumblings of Gomez challenging Danny Lopez in the late 70s. So this is where we're going with this. Finally, um, by 1980, by 1981, the time is right. The super fight that everyone's been waiting for, Gomez fights Salvador Sanchez. Yeah, you know, Salvador Sanchez was obviously coming into his own around this time. Had obviously, you know, made a, a clear mark 
on the featherweight division and kind of was starting to carve out his own stardom as it were. But uh, Wilfredo Gomez had nowhere to go, dude. Like, I mean, not, not to say he was forced into the fight, but like you said, he was, he was having a lot of trouble making weight for several fights in a row, uh, but was still fighting. In it. And he also had a couple of in-between fights too, above 122 pounds. I think a couple, even above 126 where he just, you know, didn't want to, uh, didn't want to have to make that weight. And so he was already having trouble making weight. Um, that's totally fair to mention. But on top of that, Salvador Sanchez, absolutely incredible fighter who had who had it all. He was a sharp puncher, had good punching power, not like super heavy punching power, but good power, knew when to turn it up, incredible footwork, good speed, skills, you know, on motherfucking fleek. Dude was dude was an incredible fighter. And so Wilfredo Gomez just he ran into the featherweight division at the wrong time. I mean, it, it wouldn't have been a great, it wouldn't have been great running into Eusebio Pedrosa either, but you know, he was in his own right uh, is a great fighter, but Salvador Sanchez is the consent consensus, you know, even in that short period of time, people call him the greatest Mexican fighter who ever lived, which is like, wow. I mean, not saying I agree or disagree. I'm just saying that's crazy, but also people say he's the greatest featherweight who ever lived. I mean, you know, he only had like a handful of title fights. So that's, that's nuts, you know, that he looked, that's how good he looked. So Wilfredo Gomez. vicious puncher himself, who was reserved and quiet and usually is kind of kept to himself. Unlike Gomez, who was a loud mouth, abrasive, kind of a punk. <laughs> and didn't, and didn't shy from letting people know how he felt all the time and how much he was better than them. So of course he was going to ruffle Sanchez's feathers because he was talking throughout the press conference, throughout the, throughout the press conferences and throughout the promotion about what he was going to do to Sanchez and how he was going to hurt him and how, how Puerto Ricans are better than Mexicans and all this other stuff, yada, 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 all this other stuff. You know what I mean? And so and Sanchez, that's another element. Yeah. Is the Mexico yeah. versus Puerto Rico, you know, the, totally. the rivalry. And, and considering Gomez is feeling like he has a chip on his shoulder or he fought Zarate and thrashed him. He's thinking this is going to be easy pickings. Cause I bet you he wasn't considering Sanchez to be in the class of Zarate. So all and that he looks being, goofy, you know, he's kind of goofy looking kid, kind of gangly looking, and you know, quiet. Jaw, the giant afro, just weird. I mean, like you said, too, he he was still carving his his um his niche, I guess, his history niche in the division. Like, yeah, he had beat the brakes off of Lopez twice, but he had you know struggled um with um who was the chat, who's the guy before he fought him, the Ruben, Ruben, um, Ruben something. Oh, um, oh, wow. I, I, now I, yeah, now I'm gonna have to look because I can't, yeah, I can't, I can't live with that. I can't live with that. No, um, he, he Castillo, excuse me. Yeah. Like he was like, you know, Ruben Castillo, um, Pat Ford, Juan Laporte. He had struggled against Pat Ford. He, He struggled against Castillo a little bit, beat Laporte convincingly, but these fights, we're not going to convince Wilfredo Gomez to himself that he wasn't going to be able to beat Sanchez. You know what I mean? That's the bottom line of it. Yeah. That's who yeah. I thought you were talking about at first was Patrick Ford. Cause he, cause he had a, he had a pretty good back and forth. Like uh, I think the style was really tough for him against Patrick well, Ford. Ford was a really tall gangly guy. It was yeah. just going to be awkward for anybody. I mean, I know Pedroza beat the shit out of him, but regardless, Sanchez dropped him in the first broke his cheekbone because Gomez had notoriously like, you know, had the, this his facial structure was just bad. It always got really swollen, cut up, whatever. He was a, he got yoked up easily, and his faces was enough that was swollen up really, really bad. 
turning the slits. And I mean, he had his moments. It was a great fight, but Sanchez generally got the better of it and then viciously stopped him. And that wasn't the end of Gomez, but his career as being that, you know, rampaging, just straight up bruiser was essentially over after that, you know? The, the reign of Terry made at one thir- uh, he did at 122 um, was never going to be replicated. But don't get me wrong. I mean, he still, he still you know, had a few in him. Oh, no, he totally did. I Absolutely. You know, Juan Meza would become a really, really good, uh, tough contender and future champion. And Gomez whooped his ass pretty good. Um, Juan Antonio Lopez. And then, of course, my favorite, personal favorite junior featherweight fight of all time, aside from Barrera Morales one, is his war with Lupe Pintor. Oh, dude. Yeah. I mean, there's a absolute like uh, banger, first of all, but you brought up Juan Meza and I just have to I have to bring up the Jaime Garza fight, dude. Oh, my God. Yeah, of course. That one round war. It's incredible. I'm, and I'm almost positive. Wasn't didn't Lee mention that in the closet <laughs> classics, the tales yeah, from the vault? Yeah, yeah. yeah, cause I I'm pretty sure that I had uh, I don't think I'd ever heard of the fight or had ever seen it. And I'm pretty sure where I'd where I'd first heard about it was he had written about it. And I was like, oh, I go check this out. And I'd finally seen it up on YouTube or something because I just never had a chance or wherever I was, I saw it. And I was like, whoa, <laughs> that's a fucking brutal one first round fight. But anyway, yeah. It's like, hilarious. Uh, that, and, I, and it's funny to mention that fight between Mexican-American and a Mexican fighter is taking place at a rec center under a Billy Costello title fight in Kingston, New York, of all places. Yeah, it's I mean, wild, dude. It's a and, really, really odd location for that fight, considering it should have been should have been on the West Coast. But regardless, it is one of the wildest and best one round fights ever. Yeah, closet classic. It uh, happened in a closet. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah, closet literally. Classic. Yeah, man. Well, the art rec room. Yeah, where the kids do arts and crafts earlier on. Then they're gonna have a title fight soon after. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but you have a fucking oh. raffle right after the fight or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. But um, oh. it, Gomez. Gomez still had some some terror to pull in, like the the Pintor fight, which took place on the undercard of um, Thomas Hearns, uh, Wilfred Benitez on HBO. Yeah, the just, Superdome. Yeah. Yeah, dude. Oh my God, one of the best fights you can ever watch, man. The back and forth looks like Gomez is gonna tear him up. Pintor, who is a longtime bantamweight champion at this point too, um, who had who had a you know a chip on his shoulder and something to prove, rallies back. Gomez's face starts swelling up because that's what they always did. It was a battle of attrition, and that's when it, when it looked like Pinto was starting to finally pull through, and Gomez was wilting. Um, Gomez pulled out one last rally and finally knocked him out. Incredible fight. Incredible fight. One of the best title fights you will ever watch. And um, I asked Barry Tompkins about it, and he said he ranks it up there as the best fight he's ever seen in his life. Oh, it's, um, it's, it's yeah. definitely up there, dude. And it's one of those fights where, you know uh, – it's one of those fights where like, you know, you talk about Corrales Castillo and you know, all that type of stuff. And it's like, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm with you. Like, it's, I'm not saying it's a bad fight. I'm just saying that you got to take a second look at some of these other fights. I'm just saying before you start proclaiming, that's all. No, it's, it's an incredible fight. It's a really, really good fight. Um, Lupe Pintor himself was, you know, a, an incredible puncher and in, in his own right and a very good fighter and almost pulled this win off. And yeah. even in a kind of like, you know, downsliding uh, Wilfredo Gomez, like would have been a hell of a win for him. So, yeah, no, um, clearly, though, the, Wilfredo Gomez on the other side of the kind of outside the ring troubles, the weight issues, taking a pretty good beating from Salvador Sanchez. They don't have it up on the on the boxer page, but there's a great photo of Salvador Sanchez, like in 
mid run. Yes. Yeah. With with Wilfredo Gomez like in a heap totally against the ropes. Photo. Yep. Yep. I know it's that. It's a great photo because it's just you know just the action shot is him and like. There's another photo of them Gomez laying there after he gets dropped in his face and mouth is open and gape and his eyes closed and he just looks in absolute pain and agony. Yeah, because he's gotten his ass whooped by Salvador Sanchez. You know, I mean, understandable. But no, I mean he he clearly took a pretty good whooping in that fight and we've talked about it before, but that stuff doesn't happen in a vacuum. And that obviously affected his career, even though he had a nice, you know, he had a nice chunk of career after that. And he still came back, had the win over Juan Laporte, but then, you know, Azuma Nelson, I would say pretty much, you know, for the most part, but the nail in the coffin, Rocky Lockridge is not a bad win to get, but you know, that was a different win. He didn't win that fight. Well, and first of all, he didn't really win the fight. But even so, Rocky Lockridge is not on the same level as a lot of these other fighters, you know. So it's, I mean, Gomez was clearly past it. And each time, and think about this: as great as a junior welterweight champion was, each time he became champion in a subsequent division, he would lose it in his first defense. Like he becomes champion at featherweight, he fights exactly. Nelson, got knocked out by Nelson. I mean, considering Nelson's career, that's not a big deal. But like yeah, you said, especially 130, yeah. Yeah. When he fights Rocky Lockridge and scores that gift decision, his first title defense is against a nondescript foe named Alfredo Lane. And Lane never scored a big win before that fight. He would never score a big win after that fight. Yeah, he basically uh, made Alfredo Lane, you know, on that night. Yeah, he, you know, he with made all due respect Alfredo to Alfredo Lane. Lane. Yes, rest in peace. He put Alfredo Lane in the history books that night, you know, by getting by getting knocked out. Exactly. So, yeah, man. Um, and Gomez, like you said, he had a lot of out-of-the-ring troubles. He had a lot of major drug issues, some other stuff going on with him, and gained a substantial amount of weight as well. So, yeah, there was there was a lot of things. I know he was in um, – he had some health troubles as of late. I'm not sure how he's doing now or what's going on with him, but wish him the best of luck. And if anything, he definitely had to be mentioned on the show today. So that's why we brought him up. No question. I mean, if we bring up the – if we bring up one great Puerto Rican puncher – we got to bring up another one. You know, I mean, he's there. The two between Felix Trinidad and Wilfredo Gomez, incredible, incredible punchers from a beautiful island, needless to say. But um, let's see. Moving on, it's somebody, you know, I won't bring him up because you had mentioned him. I'm going to leave that one free. However, we do have to talk about somebody who's on your arm, bro. <laughs> Sonny Liston. Yes, sir. You can't really see it, but yeah, yeah, Sonny. Well, I mean, we we talked about George Foreman, um, and we talk about when we talk about George Foreman, we'd mentioned Sonny Liston and stuff like that. So, I mean, like you know, there's there's some adjacent stuff that we've talked about, but Sonny Liston himself, like he kind of gets lost in the shuffle because he had a somewhat short heavyweight reign. You know, he's super famous, obviously, especially when you consider his heavyweight reign was just like wasn't very long. Um, but just about any opponent that you could talk to said that he was a massive punter. Well, apart from Muhammad Ali, because Muhammad Ali was just a cocky guy, dude. But um, just about anybody else, and George Foreman himself said that some of the sparring sessions he had with Sonny Liston was like Sonny Liston was the only fighter, the only one who's ever been able to go toe to toe with him in sparring and like give it back, you know, like take his punches, but also give it back. And that he said that Sonny Liston was an incredible puncher. And on top of that, just like on like a scientific factual basis, go look at photos of Sonny Liston's hands. They're like gargantuan. They're like grotesquely large. They don't match like the rest of him. It's, it's crazy. Seriously. 
Cause it's like, you don't really, it doesn't sound that crazy until you see the photos. And it's like, I have a pretty big hand and Sonny Liston's hand is like, you know, fucking like three of mine. It's nuts. I, man, Liston was an anomaly. All right. Um, we've talked about his past on past shows, you know, where he's come from, from his past where he had a very abusive father, a mom who died relatively young. I'm just, and he was, you know, he grew up with a guy who just used to beat the shit out of him. He grew up in the, in the fields. And as a young kid, when he realized that this was not the life that was going to live, he went drifting away and soon caught himself into trouble early on. But as a person who really didn't really have any guidance, you know, and a person who was as big as he was because he grew up really, uh, grew up quickly, you know, I mean, he was already a big kid to begin with. And the type of work that he was doing, all that manual labor, he was just really strong as an ox individual to begin with. So wise guys out there who just saw a person with no direction, didn't really know where they was going and no one really wanted to accept him anywhere. And they were like, oh, well, you know, we can make him useful. Eh, come with us. We'll be your family. And Liston kind of, you know, fell into the wrong tracks for a bit. But we're talking about his career now, not so much, you know, what's going on after that, man. Liston was an absolute beast when he first turned pro. Um in the, in the mid-50s, in 1955, when he came through, the heavyweight division was still, you know, it was, and it was an influx, man. There wasn't a lot going on over there. There was a lot of contenders, but they're all kind of middling. And, yeah, there wasn't a dominant guy like a Mike Tyson that would come along in the 80s that would really just clear things up that things needed to be. And even then, this was more difficult because by 1955, around the time Rocky Marciano was getting ready to retire, um, the division would just kind of go into haywire for a bit because the guy that would come into power, we talked about Floyd Patterson, his manager, Customato, would just make sure any contender that had a pulse wasn't going to get a title shot. So we had all these guys who were deserving who ended up having to fight each other and just kind of look through the driver's window. And you had a lot of guys who didn't deserve title shots getting title shots. And Sonny Liston had to go. He was a part of the former category, a guy that ended up being way too good. So he was not even going to sniff anywhere to a title until years, years later. And because of that, he had to fight a lot of tough, 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 tough guys on the come up. Early on his first year, he had to fight a contender, Johnny Summerlin, twice. And which already off the jump is just kind of like a fucking kidding me. You know what I mean? And then before his first loss, which is to a, um, another former, um, another tough guy named Marty Marshall. Marty Marshall breaks his jaw, beats him up and teaches less than, a, you know, a few lessons along the way which Liston learned well and ended up passing afterwards because soon after they have another rematch, Liston ends up knocking him out and then they fight again for a third time and Liston beats him up, you know, basically solidifying his, um, his series with him. And it's after the Marshall fights. Now we're talking around 19, like we're getting a late fifties at this point where even though Liston does have out of the ring troubles and things going on with him, he still is like, you know how do you put it man he's like at the same time when he's not dealing with out of the ring issues he's beating the shit out of all the contenders out there in the, at the of um of the era including the ones that custom auto was clearly avoiding yeah when when uh so rocky marciano fought archie moore in his last fight in 1955 and he got knocked down uh you know he had a he had a hell of a time against archie moore and so, um, you know, a, a number of things had had transpired outside the ring and inside the ring. Arch, uh, Rocky Marciano had a nagging back injury and a couple other injuries. And then on top of that, 
he had basically, uh, you know, figured out that one of his managers had been taking more of a cut than he had realized, and he didn't want to give his manager any more money. And so he decided to retire, you know, it, it was a bunch of things. So in the wake of Rocky Marciano retiring, like you said, it was like there was a big hole in the division because there was a scrum like there always is to fill that heavyweight title vacancy. And um, the custom auto was always always accusing other fighters in their in their corner of having dealings with the mob even when they didn't and then also in retrospect when it wound up being that Customato had some fairly shady uh, associations himself yes. so i mean like you know that's often how it goes whoever's shouting the fucking loudest is the one you know whoever's pointing their finger it's like you got three fingers pointing back at you so um <clears throat> in any case that kind of kept sunny list in basically scraping by and doing what he can i remember seeing and hearing rumors for a number of years that you know rocky marciano avoided sunny liston but that's like not even close to being true no, sunny liston wasn't, wasn't considered for a title shot he was he wasn't even close to being ranked until about a year and a half two years later like you know after he retired so it wasn't the timing didn't match up you know like could he have known about Sonny Liston? Yeah, I guess. But I mean, there, he was the heavyweight champ. Why the fuck would he be fighting Sonny Liston? You know, it doesn't make any sense. Saying, by the time uh, Marciano was retiring, Liston was just finishing up his series with Marty Marshall. Yeah, it doesn't. That doesn't make any sense. You know, like why would he? Yeah, let me stay not retired to fight this guy who's just fought a trilogy with Marty Marshall. Yeah, no, that's not <laughs> how it works. So I mean, you know, uh, that that doesn't fly. It's just that yeah, clearly Sonny Liston though was a feared puncher, and he was a guy who around the late 50s had started absolutely, you know, Wayne Biffy, uh, you know, uh, Cleveland Williams and, and Nino Valdez was when it really took off. Yeah, it was when right around the late 50s, when it became clear that like, all right, well, he had gotten uh, he had gotten his shit together enough that he was staying active in the ring and that he was able to actually defeat a number of these ranked contenders, these guys who were on the kind of like top 15, top 12, and then into the top 10. And I mean, man, he treated Cleveland Williams rough, yes. real rough dude. poor Cleveland Williams. And Cleveland Williams was the boogeyman in the division during that time too. You know, a guy that was the monster puncher was one of the main guys that custom auto heavily avoided. Yeah, absolute cool physical specimen too just, yeah just shredded to the, to the gills and just a beast an absolute beast who had only suffered a couple of losses and a guy who definitely deserved a title shot years before that and like you said man they were both brutal fights don't get me wrong williams did land some shots on him bloody liston's nose but they liston both and they i would imagine they both really disliked cops too well rightfully so you know considering <laughs> their their histories with them and um Consider this too, man. I think this was before uh, Williams had his encounter with the police too, where he got shot, where he almost got killed by them. I think the first sure. fight, yeah, I believe. So yeah, man, think about that. A pre-shot Cleveland Williams, who was an animal at that point, and Liston shredded, trounced him in two rounds. Like that, that was like, you know, the boxing world is just kind of like, eh? And then you see Liston, you see how long he said his arms are, and you see the size of his fist, and you see the circumference of him. You see how scary he looks in general because he never smiled and just looked like a menace. And you can see why Customato becomes almost, I feel like um, in Rocky three, Mickey, Mickey's inspiration is Customato where he's like, you know, you see him in the audience 
just watching how Cus probably would be in the back with the binoculars and watching, um, <laughs> <laughs> watching um, like the opera glasses. He's like, totally, yeah, 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 man. Watching him just like you know, fucking thump around Burt Whitehurst or something like that, <laughs> and then you see Cus just go. not tonight rock not this one it ain't gonna happen there floyd we ain't doing it because i want to fight him you're not gonna fight him not on my watch (laughs) (laughs) and soon at like cleveland williams nino valdez zora foley these were all guys that were deserving of title shots and then they ran into sunny list and sunny list proved that he was the head commodity of all these guys he just beat the shit out of them the only one out of that group that was able to last the distance was Eddie Machen. And Eddie Machen was a really solid fighter himself and a good boxer who was de- who had enough defense to be able to handle himself to do that. And Machen got his ass kicked that whole fight, too. It wasn't like it was competitive. So, yeah, man, you know, but Liston was blackballed. By the time he finally got his title shot against Patterson in 1962, Liston's best days were probably already past him. Yep. But Straight up. Did it he- didn't matter, though. <laughs> He did Floyd Patterson's work for him, dude. That entire stretch for like, I don't know, whatever it was, like a year and a half before he fought Floyd Patterson, he cleaned out the division. He did all Floyd Patterson's work for him. Meanwhile, Floyd Patterson's, you know, like the best guys he's got is like Cowboy Harris and Hurricane Jackson, Pete Rodemaker. He's fighting all these dudes who like, you know, don't really deserve uh, shots at the heavyweight title or just, you know, basically the best they got is like, they're these like characters. You know what I mean? Like they're they're like funny characters. They're not really good fighters. It's just like a good story. Pete Rodemaker, you know, won the gold. So like, let's give him a shot at the heavyweight title in his debut fight. Isn't that a great story? It's a great story, but it's not a great fight. And so, but even so, I, Floyd Patterson's getting knocked down in these kinds of fights. And so, I, there was a lot of talk. People aren't stupid. People are able to see this, and they're. Uh, people were a lot of people in the media were calling it out and saying like, you know, Customato clearly does not want his fighter anywhere near this guy or anywhere near this guy. He's not going to put him in with this guy. And so the Customato would say that writer is fucking getting paid by the mob. You know, he's clearly getting paid by so-and-so. So it was just, you know, it, it was an endless cycle of this kind of shit. But Sonny Liston totally cleaned out the division for him. I mean, dude, uh, you know, yeah roy harris he totally disposed of roy harris as he should have but roy harris was a fun character like i said in his own right and had a funny boy, st- cut and shoot. yeah had a from cut and shoot texas had a funny story had a good spread before the patterson fight in sports illustrated that you should go read if you haven't um but I mean, man jackson was completely off the wall listen never fought him but i mean these are just the characters you're talking about yeah right? just these like what where does where'd you get this guy from but then one of uh, a handful of fights in a row culminated by Albert Westfall, who was not a very good fighter, but was a big guy, you know, a visible guy. And also on top of that, the fight happened on TV. It happened on, I'm pretty sure, NBC. And so, you know, Sonny Liston goes in there and absolutely shit kicks Albert Westfall, slumps him, puts him to sleep. Like, even now, it's a brutal knockout. Just like, it almost looks like Albert Westfall is like, just standing there waiting for it. Like yeah. it's like he doesn't even move and listens just like, uh, that, that, you know, and fucking that's it. And I the dude's slow. He's just kind of like, please don't hurt me. Please don't hurt me. Just, just make this end. It. Just make it quick, man. Please God. Oh God. Okay. <laughs> but it happened on national TV and the dude winds up just absolutely unconscious and asleep on national TV, you know? So I think that it just got to a point where you can't ignore him anymore. You know, like he's putting Patterson fools to sleep. didn't want to fight him. I think Patterson even wanted to fight him before 62. 
But again, you know, Cuswood didn't let him do that. He even made sure he didn't let him do that. And by the time Patterson finally got rid of Customato, that's when he was like, all right, I'm going to fight. Um, I'll fight Liston. And everybody knew that Liston deserved it. But like, again, America was blackballing him in America, especially conservative America. We're still kind of like in the Eisenhower era of, you know, moving in the early 60s. They're not, they don't want a guy like that representing the heavyweight champion, the person that would like represent, you know, the country as being the man. Patterson was cool. Patterson was respectful. Everybody liked him. He was, you know. Yeah, he that, didn't get in trouble. He was soft-spoken. Yeah. Very soft-spoken, all that. Liston had a bad background, definitely had mob ties. Wasn't a guy that Cuss was just trying to, you know, yell about. And um, clearly uh, wasn't very surly, not friendly. Everything I'm sure he scared out. white America. Completely did. Didn't the Kennedys even, like, reach out? One of them, Robert Kennedy or JFK or one of them, reach out to Patterson personally was like, please don't fight him? <laughs> I remember hearing something about that, yeah. Yeah. So, but, I mean, Patterson, good person that he is. Went out there, fought him, got knocked out twice. It is what it is. But, you know, again, man, Liston was done by this point. Even if Liston was in his prime, I suspect that he wasn't going to ever able to do a thing with Muhammad Ali. Um, as big as Liston was, he was too short to ever really handle that. He was a tiny guy. And just the style-wise. Style, the style he was just going to play, you know. He was, he was very deliberate. He wasn't a bad, uh, he wasn't bad skill-wise at all. And he had really good jab. Like like a fucking that jab would take your motherfucking head off, but um, but he was very deliberate, and he was not uh he didn't have like much of a soft touch, and by by that I mean like Muhammad Ali did, you know Muhammad Ali knew how to you know pop 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 you know that type of shit, and that wasn't Liston. Liston was more like you know like that foreman kind of like thunk thunk you know like put a lot into his punches style. If and, you watch the first fight, you see how he's chasing Ali with the jab and like following forward a little bit. Yeah, and and he was walking into a lot of what Ali was just kind of serving him up. He didn't have a tough time, you know. And who knows all the extracurricular shit that went on in that fight? Who fucking knows, you know, with all these eyes and everything. But just in terms of skill, he was having a hell of a time that night. And I don't know that he would ever, you know, he would have never had an easy time with Muhammad Ali. And I don't know if he would have ever beaten him ever. But then in the in the second fight you know again there's so many shenanigans and potential shenanigans in these fights that it's it's really tough to know but i think that we can be pretty certain that muhammad ali he defeated him twice um but sunny liston's reputation took su such a hit after that second fight and for a number of reasons too everybody was questioning why did that fight happen in lewiston maine you know why because it was uh there's so many issues and postponements and stuff like that that it wound up going to Lewiston and nobody wanted to be there it was uh, not very well attended etc cetera, etc cetera. and then on top of that it winds up ending with a first round KO it's officiated super poorly nobody likes Muhammad Ali etc so it's like you know Sonny you fucked us over bro that type of mentality he uh, nobody wanted Sonny Sonny listen at this time and he was I guess to his credit, he did try. He did try to kind of get himself back into the good graces of at least boxing um, by coming back into the division and defeating a, a handful of, you know, decent fighters, fighters that were uh, two of them that were at least ranked. But yeah, by this point, like you said, dude, who knows? We don't even know exactly how old he was. He might not even know how exactly how old he, he was. And he just settled on a number. 
and he was past it. He was past his best, and he also had a style where he wasn't going to be doing himself any favors. His defense wasn't great, et cetera. And so by the time, you know, he had reached the end of his career, he'd obviously still had his power, but was slow as molasses. He really was, man. And, you know, he was a relic from the past too. You know what I mean? The guy that from the late fifties into the sixties, and he wasn't taking care of himself either. Like there's been all kinds of rumblings over the years, especially after he had his premature death. Um, <clears throat> about his out-of-the-ring issues. You know, Sonny Liston was such a private guy that no one really knew what he was up to out of the ring unless you personally knew him. And But everybody kind of knew, too, that it probably wasn't just him sitting at home reading the newspaper. You know what I mean? So it's like, after he passed away, you started hearing rumblings, oh, you know, Liston was addicted to heroin. Liston was addicted to alcohol. He was always, you know, the guy was always constantly just drinking vodka and orange juice or just straight-up vodka um, you know, he was high as a kite every single day. He definitely smoked weed. He did all kinds of other stuff. Like, so clearly he wasn't taking care of himself as well as, you know, continuing his career as an older guy at an age that we're not even really sure of. He could have been in his mid forties for all we know. And, um, but he was still plugging along. You know what I mean? He wasn't beating like the top, top, um, top shelf contenders of the era, but he was staying active and he was staying, you know, well and he was winning enough that like he was always on the cusp of um a potential big fight you know his name was always in the mix uh there was talks about him fighting jerry corey there was talks about him fighting for the wba title there was talks about him fighting for this one or that one uh joe frazier potentially when he was on the rise like there was always his name was always mm -hmm. in the mix for various things but you at know at one point they even tried to match bonavena against him that's right yeah oh yeah and the problem you know unfortunately everything kind of came to a screeching halt with him in 1969 when he was knocked out by Leo to smart. Oh man, that's basically that a vicious knockout. <laughs> yeah. He did to Sonny Liston, what Sonny Liston did to Albert Westfall, where it's yeah. like, it's almost like the fighter getting knocked out is like frozen up mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. like, you know, it's like they don't, they can't react. And Leotis Martin, like, I think it's a right hand, but it's a, it's a single shot, you know, like kind of puts him down and he yeah. just like, boom, you know, it's, it's, brutal and it sucks and he's and he's all bloodied up and fucked up dude like he looks like shit um, and he was winning that fight he was beating martin up man i mean martin was a good fighter a very heavy-handed fighter himself who did make rings top 100 list but he was clearly a rung below a rung below the very best of the division and when he knocked out liston that's the that basically ended liston that having any type of chance of doing anything but he still had one more fight after that six months later he comes back and he fights chuck wepner Chuck Webber, a favorite of everybody, obviously, you know, the Rocky story, yada, yada, yada. But yeah, he's a bleeder for a reason, a guy that was a punching bag for everyone in the division. Kind of incredible. He still got a title shot in 1976, considering he was getting his ass kicked against Sonny Liston in 1970. And um, in Liston's last professional fight, man, you know, it is really grainy footage of it on YouTube. There's nothing like I've never seen like clear. I've never seen clear footage of it, but. You can tell the Liston just kind of beats the crap out of him. Um, Webner's bigger than him, you know, taller, because I said Liston wasn't the tallest guy. But Liston just brutalized him. And after the fight, <clears throat> you know, Webner's face, a bloody mask, everything like that. And they ask uh, Liston afterwards, they say, was that the bravest guy you ever fought? And he said, no, his manager is. <laughs> Something to the effect of that, yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, and and not too much longer after that, you know, Sonny Liston was well, his body basically was found, and yeah. it wasn't 
100% exactly when and how he died. But I remember, I remember on a couple of different like documentaries or specials or whatever, people saying, you know, they say that he died from a heroin overdose or something like that, but he was scared to death of needles. And I just, I, I can't, <laughs> you must not know what the fuck a drug addict is, bro. Yeah. <laughs> a drug addict ain't scared of needles, but you know, uh, you know, and, but I get it though. You know, you don't, you don't want to believe somebody like that would do something like that. I understand. But um, I mean, but yeah, like there's always been, especially with the with all the books speculating about what happened. Exactly, there's, there's so much mystery. Ones making it like a true crime thing. Oh, someone killed Sonny. Blah, blah blah. At the end of the day, I think um, we bring him up a lot on the show. But like what he wrote in Sporting Blood, Carlos Acevedo, I think is the closest one because I agree with it and it, it makes the most sense. He took a hot shot from somebody that whether that guy wanted him dead or not, but Liston got some bad stuff and or it was too strong for him and it just took him out you know this shit i mean i'm not i'm not trivializing it but it happens yeah. every day every uh, day drug all addicts time. overdose all the time and and they know what they're doing and take drugs all the time it's it's when you get and fucking street whether, drugs and shit it's like how it goes you know and apparently it was probably something from the famous jazz trumpet player red rodney or if it would not, maybe from some other dealer around the time, because there's a lot of sketchy people listening was dealing with. But yeah, whether it was an intentional hot shot or someone just gave him some stuff that Liston just kind of took and it was too much, whatever it was, I think that's what it was. That's just my opinion. I don't think anyone was gonna go in there. No one, no one was gonna physically tie up Sonny Liston and shoot him with drugs or something like that. No human on the planet was gonna do that to him. All right? I don't think so. so yeah, he'd have to be shit. really. Who was gonna go into Liston's home and try to do that to him? He'd kill anybody. So, and they all knew it too. The only way they want, if someone was going to take him out, the only way to do is to give him something that he wouldn't even be suspecting. Well, and he was generally armed too. Yeah. So it's like, it wasn't, yeah, you're, we're not dealing with, yeah, I don't but, think so. I mean, yeah, well, it's, that's a whole other thing. But for my last ones, I guess we'll keep with the Foreman connection for this too. Um, it's going to be a two piecer. It's uh, two guys that were a part of his circle and two guys that were his trainers. And that would be, Two of the top five greatest punches of all time, Archie Moore and Sandy Sadler. Nice, yeah, dude. Get the the twofer. Fuck yeah, absolutely. Can you imagine though, having to? I, mean, <laughs> I, I can't even. I'm gonna have to. Well, what's that? I'm just thinking. Like I'm I'm trying to like add up how many fucking knockouts they have between them. But that's amazing, you know. Um, Sandy Sadler, Archie Moore, and George Foreman. That's like. It's right just that right there that's like three of the top 10 greatest punchers of all time so that's incredible over 200 probably close to three or so no wow anyway that's nuts but um yeah dude sandy sadler is one of those fighters who like we've talked about before had just the stature had the musculature body type whatever tall gangly you know didn't really look like much if you probably saw him on the street you'd see him in like one of those fucking old suits from like the 1940s or 50s and he's like you know looks looks like nothing and then he knocks your absolute block off the guy was and and on top of that like we've also talked about with some other fighters he was a mean mean bastard he was a dirty the dude meanest, in the ring nastiest fighters Oof. of all time yeah, and and he can punch. Oof, dude, that's rough. And he could take a punch. All right, you know, because a lot of tall, like lanky guys, if you can get in on their ass a little bit, you can hurt them and somehow maybe fold them or whatever, right? Because they don't take the best punch or hit him body wise. 
that wasn't Sandy Sadler, right? Sadler came up in the 40s and 50s, and not only was he tall, like you said, a monster puncher, mean as hell, would foul the shit out of you two if necessary. He, he, was, he had one of the all-time great chins, all right? He was only knocked out in a second or third, I think in a second pro fight or something like that. And he was never stopped again after that, all right? You know, in, in over 100 and um, close to 160 pro fights or so, he was only stopped once in his career. So, yeah, you had all that to deal with. You weren't going to hurt him. <laughs> I mean, well, and he fought like, he fought a literal who's who between featherweight and lightweight too, because he's remembered as a, you know, he was a, a big light or a big featherweight is the thing. He was a junior he, lightweight champion as well, though. Yeah, he's remembered as a featherweight, of course, because of his great trilogy, or no, I'm sorry, I think it was four fights with Willie Pep. Um, but, you know, it, well, I should rephrase that. It wasn't so much great as it was classic, I think, because two of the fights were absolute shit fests, I think. But um, but partially because he was a dude who was like kind of a win-by-any-means kind of fighter. Yes. And he'd use his forearms, elbows. Uh, and I mean, I brought this up before, but I think it was the third Willie Pep fight, either, either the third or the fourth, where it was so foul-filled that it literally, they started implementing new rules and shit like that. And, they both and, got suspended. Yeah, suspended, and their suspensions were adopted by other states who were like, fuck yeah. that, dude. <laughs> so, I mean, in any case, that's the point, is that Sandy Sadler was just a uh, somebody who was coming after your ass, dude. He was coming after you uh, from 126 pounds to 135, and he was a big featherweight. And from... uh you know, between those weights, Orlando Zulueta, Old Bones, you know, Joe Brown, Jimmy Carter, yeah. fucking, uh, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Willie Pep. Gosh, dude, I, pretty much everybody from 126 to 130 that was ranked at the time he fought. Patty DeMarco, Harold Dade. Yeah, I mean, yeah, dude, it's Tom literally, Davis. you just go down and it's a laundry Harold list. Dade, yeah, he just mentioned so many guys, dude. And he got the better of almost all of them. You know what I mean? Sure. He was, he could be outboxed and he would lose certain fights. And some of the fights he'd lose is because he would lose rounds to beat the fouling. You know what I mean? Cause again, the guy just, he had no problem oh, hitting behind the head. He had no problem lacing you. He had no problem elbowing you. He had no problem hitting you low blow. He had no problem kneeing you. He had no problem headbutting you, um, kidney punching you, you name it. He would do it. And he's one of those old school guys who could be crafty about it. But at the same time, he kind of didn't give a shit either because he was so nasty that if he felt that you fouled him, which even if you didn't, like, you know what I mean? You just had him with a punch that kind of irritated him and like maybe slightly, you know, bothered him, whatever it was. He was going to retaliate with something that was going to bother you. He'd get you in there. And since he was bigger than you and probably stronger than you, he would bully you up into a clinch and then he would just do something new. All of a sudden you'd be blind in one eye or, you know, sliced or something, you look at the referee and be like, bro, what the fuck? Are you kidding me right now? And then Sadler will hit you with three more punches and you're laid there unconscious and bloodied at the same time. Awful yeah. to fight. Like an absolute nightmare. <laughs> um, Flash Elorde, one of the most beloved Filipino fighters of all time. Uh, and, even, and even now, the Elorde family in, in uh, the Philippines, I think that, uh, I don't know if he's still active but two or three years ago, there were like, like Flash Elorde's like great grand nephews or something like that were, were all pro fighters and, you know, active and whatnot. But in any case, he had the audacity to take a decision over Sandy, Sa Sandy Sadler in the Philippines. And so then they rematched. And this is toward the very tail end 
of, of Sandy Sadler's career. But yeah. man, he thrashed he thrashed Flash Alorde so bad that they stopped the fight on cuts. But it's like there's photos of it, and go look at the photos. And there's fairly like close up photos of Flash Alorde's face, dude. That poor man. That yes. poor poor man. And His you can lips... tell some of those cuts are not made from punches. No, they sure don't <laughs> look like it, dude. Because it's like you know you get a I don't know, man. I'm not trying to say I'm like some cut expert, but it's like a lot of those uh, cuts from punches. It's like, they're like jagged nor crazy looking cuts and you get a punch uh, cut from like a headbutt, And that's like a straight, just like slice, you know, yeah. not all the time, but it sure seems that way. And man, Lord is like, his lips are all messed up. His eyes like, Ugh. dude, you just, if you fight Sandy Sadler, you're going to come out looking rough. Very much so. And it, you know, Sadler is one of those dual champions where he held titles in two divisions at the same time. Never hear of that today. But back then it was, you know, slightly more, I get, you know, it wasn't very common back then either, but it was more common obviously now because the junior divisions weren't really taken as seriously. Like yeah. in junior lightweight champion, you could hold that bell and yeah, you defended it here and there, but that was more or more or less because like, you know, if you felt like make it 126 or not, Sadler exactly. was a recognized featherweight champion. Um, that was the side, that was the title, obviously that held all the prestige. And, you know, when you look at the levels of, of Willie Pep in Orlando Zuleta, we beat for the junior welterweight, uh, junior welterweight for the junior white white belt, clearly featherweight is holding the class there. But I mean, he did hold on to the junior lightweight title for a minute and did make defenses of it. One fight I would love to see, uh, is his riot that happened with Diego Sosa. Um, I don't know if there's footage of that that happened in Cuba. Um, I've never went, seen it, but yeah, I know. They both like, yeah, they they that was kind of like um, they they both started fouling each other early on, then they both went down at the same time. Referee started counting down. Sadler got up first, and so counted out Sosa, and then the crowd rioted because they're in Cuba and they thought that Sadler fouled Sosa, and hence why he couldn't get up. But um, he probably did foul him. Yeah. <laughs> so things like that, you know what I mean? But I mean, just a really as nasty as he was and everything, he was a great fighter. And his career would have continued if he never if he didn't have a car accident. He suffered a he was in the in a cab, I believe it was, and the cab driver got into a bad car accident that um Sadler suffered a really you know bad eye injury. And um he was forced yeah. to retire because of that. Sadler, I mean like you said, by the time he retired it was around nineteen fifty six or so. He had a long ass career. Yeah, he had so like 160 fights or something. Totally. So you can only assume that by that point he would only maybe last a few more years, maybe up until like 1960 or so before his career would end. But I mean, he was still champion. He was forced to retire at the S still champion. Well, and he had also uh, served time in the U S army. Yeah. I mean, a handful of years before that. And, you know, he, I mean, it's almost unfair to be honest, dude. Cause like, I don't get me wrong. I, I have nothing against Willie Pep whatsoever, but it's like, dude, Sandy Sadler beat his ass. <laughs> you know, I'm not trying to be a dick, but people are like, oh, you know, Willie Pep is going to be like top five all time. And I'm like, I'm not saying he's not. I'm just saying that Sandy Sadler whooped his ass pretty good. So, I mean, where does he rank? But, you know. And they, that's cool that they became friends, too, because they became friends um, afterwards in their career. And if you listen to them, there was, a, there was an interview. Well, they were interviewed a lot, but like Sadler became a staple at the Hall of Fame, at least in its early years. And um, Pep was there for a number of years himself. And um, <clears throat> I think it was the first year, 1990 or so, where Sadler was up, went up to make a speech. 
and he was struggling at that point, you know, Sadler suffered from a number of health issues after his career ended. Um, he did help train George Foreman. So, I mean, the seventies, he was still active and everything, but I think it was like by the eighties, he started slowing down. So like by 1990, um, he had definitely slowed down a lot. Like, you know, his brain has slowed down, his eye issues, everything else. And, um, onset of dementia. And so he was on stage to make a speech and he was clearly struggling. And, um, Willie Pep just kind of ran up there and helped him just started improvising with him, you know, it kind of took over, kind of took over the, um, Willie Pep was pretty sharp for, he was for a yeah, long like, time up until yeah. like a rant, you know, a sharp decline in the late nineties. But, um, yeah, he, uh, he was really sharp by that point. So he kind of took over the, you know, he kind of took over the dais and like played along with Sadler to make sure he included him. And, and it was fun. You know what I mean? Like they were talking, Pep was talking about how much he whipped his ass and all this other stuff. And then he was, um, Pep asked Sadler, he's like, oh man, you know, Sadler, who will talk about, he's like, talk about some of your toughest fights, huh? And Sadler kind of, he was like, well, you were pretty good. And <laughs> 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 so then, you know, crowd cheered at that and then they talked a little bit more, but yeah, so. Yeah, I mean, definitely uh, an incredible puncher guy who who carried his power up i mean he didn't go too far but also at the same time there wasn't as much emphasis put on going through division after division and winning championships no, he was just a long time champion you know he was recognized as one of the baddest men of the, of the 50s totally. well and if you can make the weight then yeah why do you have to move yeah but you know that's just different and, different time and to know how tough of a fighter he was willie pep they always of course because this is boxing his greatest performance is the one that was never filmed. The second fight with Sandy Sadler. Yep. And they always say that that was the best performance. And Pep always said it, the bet, like the, he put all of his tools, all of his tricks, everything he ever learned into that second fight. And he's bedazzled Sadler. I mean, like there was that photo where Sadler looks kind of weary leaning back and you see Pep with both of his hands ready to both about to pounce on him, you know? And um, even through all that, they still say that Sadler started rallying in the middle rounds after just getting whooped on early on by Pep and his speed, but he started rallying. And by the late rounds, Pep looked like an absolute mess and that he could drop at any moment and that he barely hung on at round 15. Like he, he had banked enough rounds that he won the fight clearly, but by the end of the fight, it looked like he was just either mugged or run over or both. <laughs> well, and, and they've been, you know, they've been talked about as, as uh, part of the greatest rivalry in boxing yeah. since I've become a fan, you know, I've, I've of heard course, about, of course, yeah. And partially too, because it's like pep, pep, you know, it's like a funny sounding name, you know, like you, you read that name and you remember it. So it's uh, I remember from a from way back reading about them. So now that's a good call. That's definitely a good call with Sandy Sadler and Archie Moore too. But yeah. So to segue that to Archie, who was the complete opposite of Sandy Sadler in terms of just not being a angry brooding, you know, more more my all accounts i've never had the chance to meet him unfortunately i just missed him but um besides being the all you know the holding the all-time record for knockouts he just just seemed like the nicest most insightful guy like he loved jazz music there's photos of him with lucky thompson and other musicians of the time and just seemed like a general easygoing really lighthearted guy but um his profession was knocking the shit out of dudes which he was very good at <laughs> you know yeah, just a, an incredibly skilled dude, too. Um, totally. I mean, tons totally. of knockouts, and of obviously, I mean, you can't get that many knockouts if you're not a good knockout puncher. But um, 
an incredible stylist too. He was a boxer puncher. He wasn't just a pure puncher. You know, he was he was a boxer puncher for sure, with emphasis on the boxer. And um, also on top of that, he was a very good middleweight. He's met, he's remembered as a light heavyweight, and primarily that's where he had most of his fights. And he also he went up to heavyweight too. But he was a very good middleweight. Um, but I mean, it's just that. I mean, the guy's stylish, bro. You look at the photos of uh, him back in the day, especially with his hair slicked back, and then he's got the mustache and then just the soul yeah. patch. Like, that was his fucking steez, dude, the mustache and the soul patch. Like, the dude looked fucking slick. But, um, yeah, an absolute incredible puncher and a guy who knew how to set up those punches, too, for sure. And thankfully, thankfully, there's plenty of pretty decent footage of him on YouTube and that's around. He so had he, such a long career. Yeah, you know, he was around for a long time, dude. People forget. You know, some people forget. He was a part of Black Murderer's Row back in the day. He, you part know, of he Black was- Murderer's Row. And then 25 years later, fought Muhammad. No, not that long. 20 years later, fought Muhammad yeah. Ali. A young cat. Yeah, totally. Like, and, and that wasn't even his last fight. You know what I mean? When you think about it, it still wasn't as old as he looked in that fight. I remember watching it as a kid and I was like, he looks like an old grandpa because I didn't know who Archie Moore was when I was a kid. You know what I mean? And the first VHS tape I watched of Ali, the old mongoose, that's an old mongoose for sure. You can tell he's gray in the, in the, in the, in the video, his body looks old and he doesn't put up much resistance to Ali. Like Ali just kind of does what he wants and you see more just slowly slowly creep to the canvas i was like how old is this guy what was a great champion the fuck but no man you know archie moore turned pro in 1935 1935 his first pro fight was against a guy named piano man jones okay um dude that fool turned that fool turned pro during the great depression and then yes. by the time he retired they were talking about people the having Beatles depression <laughs> by the time he retired the beatles were number one all right in 1935 louis armstrong was probably number one so it's fucking wild or benny you know benny goodman whatever was popping in the big band era so like um so by the time archie moore and you know what makes this career so remarkable by the time archie moore finally gets a title shot against joey maxim um he had already had like two careers at that point most people would have been long done long done with their career um more would just would have been another charter member of black murderers were one of those guys who never got a title shot from that era had had things going according to plan because that's how most people in the establishment wanted it to be for him but you know he suffered losses early on he was one of his earlier losses was on to um teddy arrows wasn't it right the yeah. yeah who great great fighter you know not talked about enough today but just the excellent stylist and probably taught Lord, uh, taught more a thing or two in that fight um you know he had to go through guys like uh the hogue twins big boy and shorty uh shorty the brothers um and every other guy from that from that era that he had to go through like coco kid um uh eddie booker excuse me um you know you name him uh what's his name the one that everybody the consensus charlie burley yep you know what i mean jimmy bivens as a charles like mur like who's who back then you know what i mean of all these guys and fight them often too like and and this is even before before his greatness is recognized before i mean yeah. his very goodness is recognized yes, you know totally. and so 
I, what, what because gets? it's hard to really it's hard to really like branch yourself out to be the head of the pack when the talent is so good in the group that you have to fight you know what i mean you're trading wins and, and losses you have no choice yeah no, exactly <laughs> that's so such bullshit but i mean dude i what gets me is that his war with yvonne durrell and it's like every time i look this up i'm just like that should happen in 1958 Yes. Like, because I don't know why, but in my mind, I'm just like, yeah, oh, that should happen in like 40 something. But then I see it and I'm just like, it's almost 1960. Holy shit. And he, by that time, was like 38 or something like that. He was like, Probably older, old, bro. He, he might have been older. Absolutely, yeah, his 40s for sure. And I mean, like, yeah, it's just, it's amazing. It's seriously amazing that, uh, that, that fight that he was able to pull out that war. And that's like one of the most, one of his most memorable fights. And it's like, dude, he had like two careers even before that. That's what we're saying, man. It's that's nuts. It's a remarkable thing. And then like, when you listen to his interviews and you find out like the things about how he like prolonged himself, you know, apparently they said that he never ate meat, right? That he said he was on the Aborigine diet that he called it where they never, he said that they would chew meat, then he would spit it out and just like, and just have the juices. That's what he would take. And that's how he said he was always able to make weight and not worry about it. And if that's true, that is the most disciplined thing I've ever heard yeah, about. Like, there's no, no way I'm not going to be able to swallow Yeah, it. there's no fucking it. way, bro. I'm not going to spit that out and just like take the juice Yeah, I mean out. that. Are you kidding me? Oh my God. So that's <laughs> one. Um, two, again, the jazz music aspect. Like that's right up your alley for sure. I mean, totally, man. Jazz and boxing go hand in hand, but that's the most like mellow stuff, especially too when Moore's heyday in the fifties, where bebop is at the at the high right now, man. You the the talent that's out there in terms of music, you can't be beat. And Moore's friends with all of them. You know what I mean? Like he knows Miles Davis, he knows Dizzy Gillespie, um, countless other musicians that were out back time. You know Hank Mobley, Lucky Thompson, all these other dudes. Moore's boys with them, so. And uh, like his style too, man. Like he's not like a crazy, like he'll get in there and he'll slug with you, but like he's a thinker. You know what I mean? Like there's ways about him. He, he perfected that cross arm defense for himself, knew just how to box, knew how to take his time and like assess the situation. Not like he's the one who taught George Foreman how to relax in Foreman's second career. So you can kind of get a feel for everything, you know? And um, very, very, another thing too that's sometimes overlooked about him psychologically there's not many fighters that were smarter than him because he would literally put these dudes in trances when he would fight them as after, you know, as his career has progressed and he looked older and stuff like that, Moore looked like an old man. It wasn't like, you know, sure. He was still fit, but he looked like an old guy. He was graying on the sides. His face looked older, everything. Like he looked like someone that should have been chilling back playing, you know, cards with his buddies, not going in the ring over there and fighting and defending the light heavyweight title. And he had surgeries and shit too, where he had like deep scars on his stomach. You know what I'm saying? So as these young contenders like Tony Anthony and other guys, Harold Johnson wasn't a young contender. That was his rival. And others were coming up now in the ensuing years after he becomes champion. They see these things and you see more just kind of looking like a withered old man. And you're like, man, I can whoop this dude. And more would talk to you. You know, there was talks to him. I think when he fought, when he fought Anthony, Anthony was, you know, going along with him and Moore's talked to him throughout each round. And, he, and they're like, oh, man, you know, you're looking really good in there. Wow, good shot. Man, you're so good, kid. Keep that up. Keep it up. You're going to be champ of the world. And then Willie Pastrano, for instance, talked about that. They said that 
when Mora got in there, Mora's talking to him and he was like, yeah, man, you're looking great. Blah, blah, blah. And they go back in the corner and he's like, he's the sweetest man ever. And they go, what the hell are you talking about? Oh, he said X, Y, and Z. And they look at him and they go, don't listen to him. The fuck? Well, cause he'd, he'd stand there and, yeah. he'd, and he'd just be like, you know, do this little rocking shit. And he, he wouldn't even, he wouldn't even move. He'd just like rock. And then you'd lean in and it'd be like, bap, left hook. Like, holy fuck. And, all, and, that's what, and that's what Pastrano said. Pastrano said at one point, he'd be lulling you in with all this sweet talk and you listen to him, listen to him. All of a sudden, Moore told him, stand still. And then he did because he stood still. He listened. He stood still. And Moore went, pop. And then Pastrano was like, oh, you know. <laughs> I believe it, dude. You know, yeah. Archie Moore definitely had a, uh, he, he was always seemed to be smiling and he always seemed to be friends with everybody. He seemed to be pretty well liked yes. overall. You know, uh, and he also had, he often had, uh, it's not like he invented the idea of like a public workout, but he often had open camps, like open training camps. He'd invite people to his training camps all the time. And uh, he was always around kids for some reason. He seemed to, he seemed to like kids a lot. And anyway, yeah. And, and on top of that, right around by the sixties, by the time his career was winding down, he'd start in a handful of movies, including uh, what was it? Huckleberry Finn or I think it was Huckleberry Finn. Yeah. Um, yeah, but he was he, in the overalls with them. I feel yep. we played in that. Yep. The whole uh, un- unfortunately, he played, you know, the slave gym. Yes. With, yeah, I don't know. There's a whole lot more to say about that. But nonetheless, he was a, he was a celebrity and he was a star. He was well loved. Um, and I mean, yeah, dude, an incredible, incredible puncher for gosh, decades and decades. He, was believed to you know be the person to hold the knockout record for the most knockouts i think in recent years they've revised it to say that billy bird is now the the holder the official holder of the knockout record however the kind of asterisk to that is that archie moore did indeed have a number of fights that they have not been able to confirm and so it is possible that he still could potentially hold the record but um bro you're talking about when he started in the fucking 1930s, bro. Like, I mean, you know, we're talking about he started in a time where record keeping in some places still could be like not that good. You know, Absolutely. not not that they we didn't know what boxing was at that time. Like, they, you know, it was a well-established sport, but record keeping wasn't great sometimes. Or if a fight was in on a card that wasn't very big, it might not have been recorded the same way. But then fast forward to the mid 60s, you know, his last fight, Mike DiBiase, who is Ted DiBiase's dad, Million Dollar Man. Yeah, the father of the Million Dollar Man. Um, you know, by that time, it, boxing was a different animal, dude. Yeah. It was all over TV all of the time. You know, uh, all sorts of organizations had been formed to keep records and boxing writers association, blah, blah, blah. You know, the how long Archie's Archie Moore's career was was long enough to see a whole lot of shit, bro. It's like that fool says in Grandma's Boy. You saw World War One, World yeah. War Two, <laughs> Tupac. <laughs> yeah, and it's just, just, oh man. And and then he became what was what was beautiful too is that for a guy that had such a long career and he never suffered the ill effects of like um brain damage or any, you know, CT, any of that type of stuff. He just became a great ambassador for boxing. Um he was always a helping hand, an easy listen for anybody that wanted to approach him. He became involved with George Foreman's comeback. And that was really, really cool because it was like the, the generations crossing. Like, yeah, Mora was with Foreman when Foreman's first career. 
But then from Foreman coming back now, now he's the old man. Amora was an old man in his first career. And you're seeing George progress the way progress the way he does. And Archie Moore is training him. You're wondering what kind of advice is he giving this man to make him like, you know, last the way he's doing. And it, it was just it was just cool to see like Mora was just always just a really pleasant um, person to see for anybody. You know what I mean? Everybody was just always yeah. happy to have him around and he was a staple at the hall of fame. I never got a chance to meet him. Like I said, he died around, I want to say 99 or so 98, 99. And um, <clears throat> my first year was 2000, but he was every year. He was like, my dad always said that was the one guy he wanted to photograph because he had the most interesting face. And then he wore those hats with all the buttons all over it. Yeah. You know? in the pins and shit and um one thing i'll say about more too one of my favorite clips is um and i've, I've we've we've watched it i posted it on on twitter before the first year he got inducted the inaugural year of the hall of fame and you can tell man this is 1990 canister is still getting used to how to like set up <laughs> events and things like that because this is held in some shim sham gym <laughs> this effect like <laughs> um introducing all these legends but when they introduce Archie Moore, they're like, here, they're like, it's Archie Moore, everybody. Moore comes out, waves and everything like that. The crowd's really cheering. He gets in the ring and Moore starts shadow, bo- shadow boxing right around. And he looks good. Like he gets right in there. He gets in the stance. He moves, moves, jab, jab. He dances, throws a hook, parries a little bit, cuts off the ring type deal. And then he goes around and starts shaking everybody's hand. And like you said, he had made personal relationships with all the fighters. Like it wasn't just he was like, oh, hey, what's up? What's up? Like, when he saw the guys, he clearly were, you know, comrades were back in the day, like Ike Williams and a few others who were champions during his era. He gave them all warm embraces because they were all boys back then, too. But even the guys that came a little bit after him, that came a few decades after him, like Bob Foster, like um, Jose Napolis, and a few others, he came up, gave them warm embraces. He all knew them. He was like, Jose, yeah, my man, what's up? You know, and they gave each other a bring embrace, like, Moore was just that dude. What a beautiful human he was, man. I I never obviously got to meet him either. Yeah. Uh, my mom, believe it or not, actually took care of his son because uh, my oh, mom's wow. a home health nurse, was a home health nurse for many, many years who she would go to people's houses. And usually it was people who had uh, an organ transplant. Okay. She would go to their house afterward and take care of them. And Archie Moore Jr. was actually one of the people she took care of for a bit. Um, and that's you know that doesn't involve me in any way but um it's only to say what's that did she meet archie i'm sure then right no she didn't because actually by that time he had uh he had just passed away it was like right after he had passed away and and archie moore jr had had a heart transplant oh and yeah and so i i don't know that he's still with us i don't believe he is but in any case um long story short archie moore senior had settled in San Diego. I can't remember specifically where he was from. I want to say Alabama, but I know he was from the South, but he settled in San Diego, lived in San Diego for many years. And one of the freeways in San Diego was called the Archie Moore Freeway. And also right off of that freeway, the Archie Moore Freeway, to my knowledge, the house, <coughs> the house that he lived in still has it. It's a, a, a swimming pool shaped like a boxing glove. Yeah. And to my knowledge, the pool's still there. I'd have to look on like Google fucking maps or Earth or whatever. But in any case, uh, he became a San Diego boxing staple because for a number of years, San Diego actually did have a boxing community. It's not much as much now, although it's starting to revive with Canelo training there. But um, 
you know, he trained a number of local San Diego fighters or helped out with a number of local fighters. So, you know, I guess that's the only real connection I have to him, but beloved guy, um, definitely somebody who seemed well-liked in his time and still well-liked now, even removed so many years. I post photos of Archie Moore. People love the guy. So I bought that damn hat when I had the chance. <laughs> 2017, they were selling his hat at the Hall of Fame. Oh, man. And like, and it was, like, cheap, too. I think it was, like, less than 100 bucks. And I think Moore obviously had many of those. It wasn't like he just had one dusty hat he kept Still, though. It. Yeah, and I'm like, you know. It wasn't like, it wasn't like Don King and the one denim jacket. <laughs> um you know and i should have just did it because that's just like a unique thing to say you could have owned but yeah that's all right dude i mean you know there's gonna be plenty of chances it's gonna be plenty of chances to check out canastota and whatnot in the coming years but man i do appreciate you once again having a conversation with me about the greatest punchers it's a lot of fun dude hell oh, this is a blast always man yeah man i uh i appreciate also every... what's that we're just shooting the shit I mean, that's really all it is, dude. We're just, we have, that's what I think uh, some people might not understand is we have like pretty much the exact same conversations, like outside of when we tape ourselves having these conversations. This is just another conversation we're having for the most part. But no, nah, dude, I, I appreciate it though, because I know, uh, I know a lot of people uh, see, lately have seemed to have been tuning in and enjoying it. And I appreciate them. So I know that you're putting in the work and totally. it's cool, dude, for sure. Absolutely, man. So I appreciate you all listening definitely speaking of which if you did listen in please do subscribe via you know apple podcasts google podcasts wherever it is you listen in give us a rating that is helpful but if you watched on youtube thank you hello and also subscribe give us a reply comment those kinds of things we'll we'll reply we'll get on there we'll say something or we'll reply on the next show either way uh, so thank you again, but we're also on social media. The Knuckles and Gloves podcast is on Facebook and Instagram, also on Twitter though. And individually, we're on Twitter. Eris is on there as Punch Zone Eris. Me, Patrick Connor, I'm on there as Patrick M. Connor, and hopefully we'll talk to you there, Eris. Talk to you soon, bro. Have a good one, y'all. Later, buddy. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.